Hello, and welcome to episode 21 of Screaming Through the Ages, a horror movie history podcast. I'm your host, as always, Trey Whetstone, coming from Columbus, Ohio. And today, as we move into the 20s of the episode numbers, we're going to move into a new chapter and turn the page from Alfred Hitchcock and move into kaiju films. These aren't necessarily horror, sure, but they're definitely in the realm and something I'm very passionate about and I've wanted to talk about for a long time. So with these episodes, they're probably going to be a little longer. I don't know right now, but I know I have a ton of stuff to talk about on this first episode and I'm just really excited to get started. So let's let's dig into this and go through like an overview of what we're going to be talking about for these episodes. So I've broken it up into four parts and I was toying around with the idea of doing one Godzilla episode, but I don't think that's going to work. So I'm going to split up Godzilla into two different episodes. So here's what the rough outline is going to look like for this. In episode one here, we will be talking about the Showa era Godzilla films. I'll be giving some overall thoughts on Godzilla as a whole, and going through... I thought it would be fun to go through the timeline film by film, give some background on some of the films where we have it, and then, you know, discuss the movies as warranted as we go through. Just probably a brief couple of lines, because I think I've seen all of these, but there are a few that I haven't seen in a long time. I've rewatched most of the ones these past couple weeks, but for those ones that I haven't, I probably won't have a whole lot to say about. So that's going to be the core of this episode. Now, episode two, I'm going to be moving into Dai Films, which is, or which was, another Japanese movie studio, and we'll talk about some of their stuff, and then in part three, we'll get back to Godzilla and do the Heisei, Millennium, and Reiwa eras, and, you know, other animation of Godzilla and that kind of stuff. All of, all of that, it'll be a Godzilla cleanup episode for everything else. And then the last episode that I have um, solo going on with this... I'm going to do just a ton of miscellaneous kaiju roundups. So some of those older Toho films or other Toho films and maybe some other non-Toho films. But we're going to be getting into a lot of stuff that's not Godzilla and doesn't belong to Dai either. That's what I've got planned. I've also got a bonus episode planned if this goes through with Nathan Bartleball where we're going to be giving, you know, our top 10 kaiju and also maybe talk about one or so underrated kaiju movies. And then we're going to be talking about a weird film, which is Paul Gasari, and that's just an incredibly weird film. Um, We'll talk about that more in that, but I think we're going to be watching that going over it. That's the plan for now. Things could change, but that's how we have it laid out. Godzilla, and I'm going to give you a peek behind the curtain here. This is one of the things that... You know, it's one of my earliest film foundations is Godzilla. I mean, I think I think that applies to a lot of people that, have, you know, you'd watched Godzilla. If you were into that kind of stuff, you watched a ton of Godzilla when you were younger. For me with Godzilla, it was right there at the start. I don't know if there was anything else. I know I had watched Star Wars around the same time. So I don't know which one came first. But my earliest memories of Godzilla are going to the one of the local video stores, which was Front Row Video, and I think I was like five or six years old. I wasn't very old because that movie store closed when I was like six or seven. So we would go there, I think about every week, and I would pretty much just go through the Godzilla section, 
you know, the Godzilla titles, and I'd see if there was anything new that I hadn't seen before, you know, a new one pop up, because they were making newer ones then. And if not, I would try to grab one that I hadn't seen before, one that I really liked, and I went through the Godzilla films like that when I was very young. Um, I'm sure, I mean, I know these were, <laughs> were the English versions and not, you know, the dubbed versions, but still, when you're a kid, that doesn't really matter much, but I just remember going through all those, you know, watching the Showa era films and the um, Heisei era films and, you know, stuff like the rebirth of Mothra and all that. So I was really invested in that early one. Then I have memories of, you know, watching marathons on TV as well of the Godzilla films. I was really into Godzilla as a kid. It was a really big part of my childhood. And, you know, I'll get into more on the, when we get into the animated stuff. I mean, when 1998's Godzilla came out, that was a huge deal for me as a, you know, an eight-year-old kid. And I, I remember, you know, the Taco Bell marketing campaigns with that, where, you know, the little chihuahuas calling out the lizard, and they sold those um, talking stuff chihuahua dolls and things like that. And it was a crazy time, but yeah, I remember all of that from the Godzilla movie. And you know, it was one of those, and just like Star Wars, you know, it was something where I had watched the movies in the mid-90s, probably. And then there was something new coming out at the end of the 90s. And both kind of had, you know, mixed views. I didn't know much better than watching that 1998 Godzilla film when I was young. I can't remember what I thought about it. I know I did have my parents buy it, so I'm sure I liked it as a kid. I think I've revisited it once, maybe 15 years ago, and did not think so highly of it. I, I don't know. I might have to dig back into that one, but... The thing is, is, you know, there was that going on. There was an animated series with that. There was the Hanna-Barbera cartoon that I will get in and talk to on the next Godzilla episode that I, you know, watched every, every Saturday. And Godzilla was just a huge factor of my life. I remember when Godzilla 2000 was playing, and this was a very big deal for me. And we were on vacation with my family in, well, kind of vacation. We were in Cincinnati, which is, you know, a few hours drive from my parents' house. And we were at the Kings Island theme park. We were staying overnight. We were there with my grandparents. So, you know, so our whole family. And Godzilla 2000 was playing at this movie theater by Kings Island. We were all going to the movies. And my family all wanted to see, you know, I think it was the sequel to The Nutty Professor. But I wanted to see Godzilla 2000. And I begged and pleaded. And my grandpa, who has been a huge influence in my life and... You know, I remember he took me to see Return of the King, or he took me, yeah, he drove he drove with me and sat through Return of the King, and that was a big memory for me. Like, he was the, the one that was into the weirder movies and just cinema as a whole. I mean, he always would watch anything from, like, you know, Death Wish to the Westerns or whatever, and it didn't matter if I was there or not. Yeah, but he was, you know, he was like, oh, I'll take him to see Godzilla. Because I don't know, he, I mean, he probably wouldn't have minded seeing Godzilla either. But uh, fortunately, unfortunately, my mom said no. And I went to see, you know, the Nutty Professor sequel, which, uh, yeah. I, <laughs> I won't get into that. But I do remember when Godzilla 2000 hit VHS, and I was so excited to see it at the video store. Now, Front Row Video had closed at this time, and I had moved on to... The other one that was a little further from us, not very, a few minutes further from us, and that was called Sights and Sounds Video. And yeah, I remember that 
Godzilla 2000 case and the way it had like the raised Godzilla on the front. And it was so cool and I was so happy to rent that one. So excited to rent that one. And yeah, big into Godzilla. Just to give you kind of my background on where I stand with the series, you know, I kind of watched it all. Now the Millennium Films after Godzilla 2000, I don't know if I had seen any of those before a few years ago. I kind of went back when I was watching some other Godzilla films, but I know I watched, you know, most of the other ones before. All right, so this show is going to be pretty big. And once again, I think you can already tell by the amount of time I've talked about just Godzilla memories that I'm very into these kaiju memories. But my background is that, you know, I've seen a ton of Godzilla movies. I've seen some Gamera movies. I've seen some um, other miscellaneous ones here and there. But I haven't really dug deep into a lot of the other stuff, which is why I'm dedicating an entire episode to digging through some random kaiju films. Yeah, but I mean, these episodes out there, there are so many, you know, big kaiju fans out there. And I know who you are. You know who you are. Um, I'm not going to start listing names because there are just too many and I know I'm going to forget them. But this is for all of you guys out there. And I hope you enjoy these episodes. And I I really do because this, as you're going to see, I think it's going to come out how excited I am to do these episodes. But let's get into a little general discussion. I mean, Godzilla is a major major pillar in film history and without Godzilla I mean Godzilla is a it transcends into the pop culture right even if you've never seen a Godzilla movie a lot of people know who Godzilla is and the newer Godzilla movies have I think helped with that in general whether or not you like those I mean that's up to you but it is at least bringing Godzilla to a wider audience now is someone going to go out and watch you know King Kong versus Godzilla after watching Godzilla vs. Kong? Probably not. And I wouldn't recommend that you do, necessarily. I don't know if that's a good place to start. But Godzilla has just become this bigger-than-life, literally, uh, bigger-than-life creature, and his residence in Japan is so much felt in their industry. I mean, that drove their industry for these kaiju films forever. And... Yeah, they, I mean, they didn't tail off. I mean, we'll see here when things start to get bad, but they were still making kaiju movies into the set from the 50s all the way through the 70s. And then they started making, you know, we got some TV spinoffs that would go on to influence American culture as well with things like the Super Sentai shows and you had Ultraman and Kamen Rider and things like that that were coming out on TV that would influence the pop culture for years. And right now we're starting to see we're in a weird place because we've got the Hollywood MonsterVerse from Warner Brothers, which I would love to see them, you know, there are some creatures I would love to see them bring back, but I'd also love to see them kind of start going in their own new territory, try to build some new ideas. And with those Titans that they showed in King of the Monsters, I hope that's not the last we see of some of those. Because that could be a really exciting prospect of developing those characters and having them be Maybe not necessarily in their own films. Maybe. I mean, I that's the way I would want it to go. I think I was talking with Nathan Bartleball the other day, and I'd much rather see standalone kaiju films and newer monster movie, monsterverse films, and, than I would see, you know, another DC sequel or something. So uh, we'll see where that goes. I think that's kind of a risky prospect for them. But yeah, we're in this weird time, so we've got that going on. And at the same time, we've got 
we had Shin Godzilla come out, which is a very different Godzilla film, and I will talk about that on the next episode. Um, that is a Hideki Anno joint, and Hideki Anno was the creator of Neon Genesis Evangelion, and that was a huge kind of kaiju anime, and again, we'll get into that as well. But it's kind of created this new universe, this shared universe within their realm, because we have Shin Ultraman coming out this year, and then there was an Evangelion film, which is apparently part of that universe. It's very weird. You know, and then we've got some anime that were coming out on Netflix. We've had a Godzilla anime come out, you know, I think it was maybe last year or the year before. So we've got some new stuff stirring up, and then we've got the MonsterVerse going full force. But we don't have those traditional Godzilla films like we used to see. Is there a place for those in today's society and today's, in this new climate that we're in? I mean, I think so. I think there is definitely room for that. Uh, They are making a TV show, which I don't, you know, you could take that one way or another. I'm kind of sick of the streaming service stuff, though. And, I mean, if there was a Godzilla streaming service or a kaiju, like an old Toho streaming service, I think that's what they need. Because a lot of these Toho movies are just, they've become lost. I was upgrading, I've always had the DVDs of the Heisei era films, and I have the Showa era set from Criterion, which is awesome, that has all those movies. But... The Heisei stuff, you know, Sony has the rights to distribute those. So, as you would expect, they've lied barren. Um, We basically had some Godzilla collections, and it was like a two-disc set, uh, or two-case set that would came with the Godzilla films of the Heisei and Millennium Eras. And I just recently went to upgrade those, and there is one of those. I got all of them except for King Ghidra and Mothra, those two movies. And those ones are out of print, that double pack, because they sell those in double packs. There's like two on a Blu-ray, and you get two discs in there or whatever. But yeah, that one's out of print. So there's no way to get a Blu-ray, like a high-def version of those two movies. And I don't even know how easy it is to stream those movies either. It's very hard. That's a major problem, and I'm hoping Criterion maybe picks up that stuff too at some point. But a lot of other Toho films... Where are you going to see them? You can either see a chopped up English version on Tubi, or you can see the Japanese version on archive.org, which has been my friend multiple times going through these episodes. But archive.org has a lot of the Japanese versions of these kaiju films that are lost because there are DVDs, you know, it's like a three pack of Toho films and it's been out of print, so now it's going for 80 or $90. It's just not reasonable. So Godzilla is in a very weird place in our culture. That Showa set was huge, and I think that was set number 1,000 for Criterion. So maybe in the near future we get, you know, the other Godzilla films in Criterion. That would be awesome. But let's start off. First of all, I've been throwing these things around. And for people who maybe aren't as into Godzilla or the kaiju stuff or Japanese culture, Showa era, Heisei era, Millennium era... Reiwa era. <laughs> what am I talking about? So if you know anything about Japanese culture, they they tend to, or just Asian culture in general, I feel like because China's had this as well, you know, you have, you've listed the name of a time period under a certain ruler. So the Showa era was really between 1926 and 1989 under the reign of the emperor Hirohito. And that was, you know, even though the, that's the thing is like the Heisei era starts before the Showa era ends in Japan, really. 
but that's just how it's always referred to. So you've got that, you have the Showa era, and then you have the Heisei era, which really is only considered to run from like 84 to 95. And then you have the Millennium period, which is starts with Godzilla 2000 and goes in for a few more movies. And then the Reiwa era is the, that's the new one, and I've seen that's what they referred to Shin Godzilla as. So that's kind of giving you a breakdown of what I'm talking about with that stuff. So now we, that we know what that is, let's get into a little bit about what Godzilla is, and it's essentially, you know, most of these movies are metaphors for destroying the planet through radiation or pollution or any of that stuff. That's kind of what these serve as. You know, they are the they are the figurative fallout from nuclear weapons and the atomic bomb, and we're better of a place to talk about that than a, you know, place that was struck by nuclear weapons or atomic weapons. And plays a huge factor in Japanese culture and their history. So there's no better place for these to have originated from. Now, as to how it originated, we'll get into it in a little bit. But with that, you see that's how these early monsters kind of came into creation until you get to Ghidorah in the Godzilla series, which is the fifth movie in the series, I believe. All these other monsters are just kind of mutated earth creatures. You've got Godzilla, who was based off some dinosaurs. I'm getting into that a little bit as well. You've got Anguirus, who's basically an Ankylosaurus. You've got Mothra, who is a mutated moth. You've got King Kong in there, who's just a you know very large gorilla. And, I mean, that's what you're getting. Rodan, who is, you know, pterodactyl. That's what you're getting a lot in these earlier kaiju films. When we get to Ghidorah, or King Ghidorah, you really get this shift, and now we've got a space creature. And at that point, I wouldn't say all bets are off, but we do get some very weird things after we get Ghidorah. And it might take a few years to get there, but it kind of changes the game, because we're not just dealing with creatures from Earth that have mutated. I mean, you see that later on. You've got Kamanga and all these different kaiju who are just bigger forms of animals, or other species that have lived on Earth at some point. And Ghidorah is just this... Now, the thing with Ghidorah, and we'll definitely get into this, but he was based on something from Japanese mythology. So it's not truly original there either. Speaking of when we're getting a little weirder, the thing about Godzilla is, you know, kaiju films are starting to struggle into the late 60s, 70s. And we start seeing with Godzilla throwing stuff at the wall to try to see what sticks. And you get these weird-off, one-off kind of monsters. And I think a lot of that has to do with, and you see this in other series too, because if you're thinking about the Gamera films, I mean, there are a lot of Gamera monsters that have, if they made they made another one or more appearance than their original appearance, and that was in a terrible movie. I don't want to get into that yet. But you start to see these creatures where maybe... These would have been in the 60s a, you know, their own movie. You know, you may have seen a Gagan movie by itself in the 60s. In the 70s, we're relegating them to Godzilla villains and ones that don't necessarily play a huge role in the Godzilla lore. But I think you do start to see a shifting there from the 60s to 70s. Some cool things about Godzilla and some iconic things about Godzilla and just how great this is and things that have stuck out to me Like I said, Ghidorah, I love the design of Ghidorah, even if it is based on something else. I think that really 
you know, sets it apart. I think Ghidorah raises the stakes. And I love Mothra and I love Godzilla and all this stuff, but Ghidorah brings it up. And then you've got this Godzilla theme that has been reworked over the years and it started out, uh, I, I'm not going to get ahead of myself on any of this stuff. I'm getting ahead of myself when I'm talking about this. But you do have this Godzilla theme that has ran throughout and has been changed and mixed around a little bit here and there. But it's basically stayed the same and it's this through line through the series. And you've got this iconic, you know, Godzilla has an iconic roar. And some of the other monsters have their own roars as well that you would recognize. But he has this distinct sound. And, you know, you have this, you hear that roar off screen, you know what it is. And you have this, when he's getting ready to spit his, you know, atomic breath, his spikes light up on his back with this blue light and it, you know, sprays out of his mouth. And it's just a very iconic, very kind of fleshed out sort of thing, sort of character that has just persisted. Um, so those are some kind of characteristics of Godzilla that I have loved and kind of makes him stand out from the rest. And one more thing, the Shobajin, which are the Mothra fairies, these are things, this is where we truly can say, you know, the Godzilla series, yeah, other countries have done monster movies, sure. But the Godzilla movies truly have a flavor of their own. And if you watch anything that is wholly Japanese that hasn't been Americanized before it came over, the Japanese, you know, they go some weird places. And that's why I think I love Japanese cinema is they're not afraid to do weird stuff. And the fairies that kind of serve as Mothra's, almost Mothra's mouthpiece for her, you know, <laughs> the Shobijin. They are very iconic and I think very weird. And I think that would be something that would help with the, you know, attracting people in outside of the just normal giant monsters fighting. So as we go through this, these are some things that I just wanted to put up here at the front and give some like touchstones for Godzilla and what makes it iconic, what makes it itself. And I'm sure we'll be talking about that as we go through the movies. So... All right, I have wasted enough time here at the front just talking and talking and talking about Godzilla, but it is time to get into this. How did this thing start? What does this timeline look at like? Um, I hope this is interesting to longtime Godzilla fans. I hope you learn a thing or two that maybe you didn't know before. If not, I understand that completely, but I'm hoping you get something out of it. And if you're newer to Godzilla... I hope this makes you want to get in, and I'll, hopefully I'm going to try to give you a little guide about where I think is a good place to start and what my favorites of this era are. Let's go ahead and get started with the granddaddy of them all, Godzilla 1954. In 1954, Toho was set to make an Indonesian-Japanese co-production called Shadow of Glory. Now, Toho is a huge studio in Japan. They've done a ton of things from... You know, the Godzilla franchise, obviously, to a lot of Akira Kurosawa films, and so much more. They're definitely one of the more recognizable Japanese film studios. So Shadow of Glory was set to be a war movie about a Japanese soldier in Indonesia during the World War II occupation. It was set to be Toho's first major color film as well. But unfortunately for them, the Indonesian government denied the filmmakers visas due to the anti-Japanese sentiment in the country at the time. Now, I know what you're thinking. How does this relate to Godzilla? Well, this led to producer Tomiyuki Tanaka flying to Jakarta, which is the capital of Indonesia, to negotiate with the Indonesian government. And on the flight back after negotiations, 
he came up with an idea that would launch what would become arguably the most well-known Japanese film series in history. Tanaka was inspired by both the recent release of The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms and the re-release of King Kong due to their financial successes. So let's stop there for a minute. And I think, I know I've heard Dr. Shock, Dave Becker, talk about this, about, you know, there's... Now, I'm not going to go into what those are because I cannot remember. I know one was Western for sure. But, you know, American, true American, like, film genres that can be uniquely created by the Americans. Honestly, I think you can rack up giant monster movies with with those because they inspired Japan. You might think about Japan when you're thinking about those types of movies. But really, there's no Godzilla without King Kong or the Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. So that was one part of his inspiration. The other part was the Daigo Fukuruyu Maru. And that incident, that was basically a, you know, that was basically a fishing boat. And this incident happened in March of 1954. During this, 23 fishermen on that boat uh, were contaminated by the fallout from a U.S. nuclear weapon test. So this would also go on to serve as the foundation for the opening scene of Godzilla. As you can hear already, I'm kind of getting deep into this film in particular. We're going to get really deep into the first film, maybe the first few films, because we have so much on this, and it's so interesting to see where it starts. Um, I'm even going to get into the kind of design behind the suits and how they created them, something that I'm not necessarily going to talk more about on later films. But that's just how it goes. We know more about these. I think it's important to set the foundation, so you're going to have to buckle in here a little bit for Godzilla. Over the course of the flight, Tanaka put together an outline which he titled The Giant Monster from 20,000 Miles Beneath the Sea. When he got back, he pitched this idea to executive producer Iwayo Mori, who reached out to special effects director Eji Tsuburaya, and Tsuburaya decided that the project was feasible from a financial perspective and agreed to sign on to the project. Mori approved and changed the name to Project G, in which the G stood for giant. He told Tanaka to focus all of his attention on this film and to kind of put all of his other projects off to the side. Toho intended for movie director Senkichi Taniguchi to go to the film after Shadow of Glory fell through, but he declined. There were also several other directors who were approached, but they all declined as well, with some even going as far as to call the idea stupid. Tanaka wanted Ishiro Honda to take the helm, and after some convincing, Mori approved. Honda claimed he had no problem taking the material seriously, which was most likely due to his interest in science and other, as it was put in my reading, um, you know, unusual things. (laughs) So, whatever that means. Koji Kajita was brought on as an assistant director. This would mark the first of 17 times that he and Honda would work together. At the time, sci-fi films didn't get respect from critics. To kind of combat this, Tanaka, Honda, and Tsuburaya decided they would treat the film as a sort of a documentary that would show the monster attack as if it were happening in real life. In May of 54, Tanaka hired sci-fi writer Shigeru Kayama to write the story. He wrote a 50-page story over the span of 11 days, and man was it weird. Kiyama's treatment depicted Dr. Yamani wearing dark sunglasses and a cape, and he only came out of his house at night. It also had far less destruction and featured a Godzilla who was much more like an animal that only came ashore to feed, and I believe there was the, you know, focus on 
women as well. I think there was like the King Kong aspect of uh, he had a focus on a woman. Maybe that was this one. Maybe it was another one. I don't know. Takeo Murata and Honda co-wrote the screenplay in three weeks based off of this treatment or story that Kayama wrote. They had a hard time working Kayama's story into a feasible screenplay, though. Tanaka and Tsuburaya were on opposite sides of the suggestions. Tsuburaya, being the special effects artist that he was, told them to do whatever it took to make the film work. Why Tanaka, being the producer, cautioned that they should not spend too much money in making the ideas work. <laughs> so, a little bit on ends, different ends of the spectrum there, but you get it, given their roles. The two made several key changes to the story, which included adding a love triangle for Emiko, and deciding to only show parts of Godzilla early on to build up to the big reveal, which I think personally is a good route to take. The first attempt at Godzilla's design came from Kazuyoshi Abe, but his designs were rejected. It said they were too humanoid and that the creature had a head shaped like a mushroom cloud. So, from my standpoint, I'm thinking that's a little too on the nose for their liking. Uh, yeah, we're making this as a commentary on the nuclear age and all this, but a mushroom cloud? Yeah, that's a little much. Anyway, uh, Tezio Toshimitsu and Akira Watanabe were responsible for Godzilla's final design. At first, they were thinking of making him a gorilla or a whale-like creature, since the word Gojira, which was the Japanese title, is a combination of gorilla and whale in Japanese. But they ultimately went with the famous dinosaur design that we know today. They based their designs off of a combination of a T-Rex and an Iguanodon, and then put the dorsal fins of a Stegosaurus on the back. So, a little bit of a dinosaur mixture there. Superaya wanted to use stop motion for Godzilla, but he was forced to settle for suitmation when he realized that with Using stop motion, the movie would realistically take about seven years to complete, which was not an acceptable timeline. So Toshimitsu got to work on sculpting clay models to base the suit on, and of his three designs, one of his three designs were chosen to be the one. The suit making process was very elaborate and tedious, and the final product ended up weighing around 220 pounds. They needed a smaller model as well for close-ups, so Toshimitsu also created a small hand-operated mechanical puppet. And it's funny looking back at these movies, especially if you watch some of the Gamera movies, you can tell, it's very funny that you can tell when the miniatures are used and you can tell when these hand puppets and stuff are used in these films. It doesn't really take me out of it, though, as much as when I spy something else that's like blatantly or obviously wrong, like a you know, something, a continuity error or something like that. When I see these, I just, it doesn't take me out at all. I think it's just charming, and I think it adds to the charm of these movies and how they made them. Haruo Nakajima and Katsumi Tezuka were the ones picked to perform in the suit due to their strength, but it proved to be too much for them to handle, as Nakajima fell over during the first fitting of the suit. They cut the suit in half and only used it for partial shots, and then they created a less detailed and much lighter version for wide shots, but Nakajima was still only able to remain in the suit for about three minutes before he passed out. We're going to learn, as we go through this timeline today, just how strenuous these suits were on these people's lives and what they had to go through to get these monster movies, these cheesy monster movies that we love. It's incredible what they put into it. 
he lost a whopping 20 pounds during the filming. He would go on to play Godzilla and other kaiju until he retired in 1972. So, you know, Nakajima loved what he did here, I'm sure. Or maybe he just needed the money. I don't know. But I wouldn't put myself through that. There are plenty of other jobs you can get if you need the money, I suppose. Tezuka was older and unfortunately wasn't able to handle the strain of being in the suit. Most of the scenes that he did didn't make it into the final product. They also had to create miniatures for a lot of the effects, like I was talking about earlier. Once when the special effects crew were out scouting locations, they were nearly arrested after security guard overheard them talking about destroying the nearby buildings or how they would destroy them. They were only released once they showed their Toho business cards to prove that they were just making a movie. So that's pretty funny. You, you're out there uh, talking about destroying some buildings and get picked up by the police. Yeah, that's... <laughs> I feel like that probably happens more than we know, but... And it took a crew of 30 to 40 carpenters an entire month to build the miniature version of Ginza for the film. So that's kind of giving us a background of the special effects and how some things were created. Let's get into, you know, what happened when they started filming this movie. Uh, Shiro Honda only wanted to work with people who were fully committed to the project. On the first day of filming, he spoke to a 30-person crew, telling them to read the script and leave the project if they didn't fully believe in it. So, Honda's our guy. Honda is really into this, and he would really be the driving force of a lot of Toho films at the time. And, I mean, he made some incredible movies under Toho. He made some that maybe aren't so good, sure, but I think his track record were more hits than misses. Honda is fully on board for this. I mean, you don't see this now a lot where someone just spends their entire career, and you didn't see it a lot back then either, where someone just spends, you know, once you get out of the studio system in Hollywood and you start breaking things out, people don't really spend their whole careers doing one thing, especially these kind of what were considered more cheesy B-movies, at least in the West. Maybe not so much in Japan, but... They mostly filmed on the Toho backlot, but they did film the Oda Island sequences on a peninsula in the Mie prefecture. Every day, the crew had to take a boat to the location in extreme heat. Uh, Honda worked shirtless during the filming there and suffered sunburns so bad that they blistered over. In fact, he would have permanent scarring on his back from shooting Godzilla. Well, I mean, I guess <laughs> I guess your options are to be very hot in a t-shirt or to have permanent scarring. I re respect it, though. I respect Honda's out there going shirtless, directing Godzilla. But yeah, that that couldn't have been fun being for the whole crew filming those scenes in that heat. Toho convinced the Japan Self-Defense Forces, and that is basically, you know, their... If you've watched any of these films, that is their, you know, their military. The ones responsible for protecting and securing Japan. So they convinced the Japan Self-Defense Forces to film target practice and drills for them to use in the movie's military scenes. Unfortunately, they didn't cooperate with Toho, um, not very much at least, and they had to rely heavily on stock World War II footage for their military-type scenes. Mori worked extremely hard, and again, Mori is the executive producer on this, worked extremely hard to promote the movie. He had a Godzilla doll mounted to a truck and driven around Tokyo. He sent posters and displays to stores for them to put up. He flew large advertising balloons around and even created an 11-episode radio play that would air before the movie came out to drum up excitement. The play would run from July 17, 1954 through September 25th. 
the company even started putting to- or putting Godzilla on their Toho stationery. So what they're using internally or maybe giving out to people, if it's got Toho's name on it, it's got Godzilla on it to promote this film. They were, you get the feeling that they're putting a lot into this. And, you know, Tanaka just came up with this idea on a flight. And <laughs> Mori's going all in on making this thing a success. So they're really putting everything into this bucket to try to drive Toho forward. Mori barred reporters from coming on set because he didn't want them to get a look at the film, and he also kept the special effects highly under wraps. How far under wraps? Well, Nakajima's suit performance wouldn't even be revealed until the late 1960s. The film's theatrical trailer would first play in Japanese theaters on October 20th, and the film was released in Nagoya a week later. The film would premiere nationwide on November 3rd. Now, after its release, the movie was a huge success and sold out theaters on release day. It even broke the record for sales for a Toho film. Honda's wife Kimmy recalled the CEO even called to congratulate Honda on his success, and she clarifies that that sort of thing didn't usually happen at the time. You wouldn't just have a CEO call, you know, one of the grunts to say congratulations on this. So what do we get when it comes to America? There are two very different versions of this film, and I think most people know that. There is Gojira or Godzilla that came out in 1954, then you have King of the Monsters, Godzilla King of the Monsters specifically. So let's get into a little bit of that one. And for most of these Godzilla films, there were American versions that were different in little ways. A lot of them were more truer to the originals. But this one was a lot different. Uh, In America, Godzilla began playing in Japanese-American neighborhoods in 1955 and wouldn't stop until the early 60s. So from 1955 through the early 60s, the original Godzilla would play in these Japanese communities with Japanese-speaking people, you know, Japanese-Americans. So that was playing for them, and then there was an English subtitled version of the film that would finally be shown in 1982 at film festivals. So we didn't get the English sub version of this until 1982, which was, you know, over two decades after its original release. Following the film's success in Japan, Toho sold the American rights to Joseph E. Levine for $25,000. A heavily altered version of the movie was released in the U.S. and worldwide as Godzilla, King of the Monsters, on April 27, 1956. This version trimmed the original down to 80 minutes and featured new footage with Canadian actor Raymond Burr interacting with body doubles mixed with Honda's footage to make it seem like he was part of the original Japanese production. We would see this... Over and over. Now, we're not going to see anything to this extent. This creates an entirely new character and uses look-alike body doubles to put him in existing, you know, footage. We will see changes for the American audience, and you're going to see that with Japanese localization throughout history. There are always changes until more recently to make things more American, and they kind of lose their charm that Japanese stuff has. King of the Monsters is nowhere near on the level of what Godzilla 1954 was. I will just say that, but uh, for the American version, many of the film's political themes were trimmed or removed completely. It was also this version of the original Godzilla film that introduced audiences worldwide to the character and franchise, and the only version that critics and scholars had access to until about 2004, had readily available to them until about 2004. 
So once again, it took us forever to get that Japanese version over here. And, you know, at that time in 2004, the 1954 film was released in select theaters in North America. So, and then we would have home releases to follow. Uh, Godzilla King of the Monsters grossed $2 million during its theatrical run in the U.S., which was more than what the 1954 film had grossed in Japan. Honda was unaware that Godzilla had been re-edited until Toho released Godzilla King of the Monsters in Japan in May of 1957 as Monster King Godzilla. So they released this as a completely different movie. I mean, why not? Why not? Because it is very different. Why not release this remixed version and see how it does? But I'm sure Honda was not very happy with that. Toho converted the entire film from its original scope to widescreen scope, which resulted in an awkward crop for the entire film. So that's not good. But um, Japanese subtitles were given to the Japanese actors, since their original dialogue differed greatly from the original script, and were dubbed in English. It was this version that caused Toho to actually adopt the moniker of King of the Monsters for Godzilla going forward. Okay, so that's, that's what we have on Godzilla 1954. Godzilla 1954, there's not a whole lot that I need to say about this one. Godzilla fans are, I mean, this, if you're a Godzilla fan, you know this is the, this is the king, you know. If you were not a Godzilla fan, you probably know this is the one. You might have even seen this one, if not any others. This is probably the best place to start if you want to watch a good movie. Is it the best, you know, kaiju action or anything like that? Maybe not, but the movie and how well done it is, I mean, it's it's a work of art. It's a classic film. It's the best in the franchise, really. So when we're talking Godzilla, you know, this is the, this is above the rest. And when we're talking in the American version, King of the Monsters, King of the Monsters would have been the first one that I had watched, sure, because, you know, I was younger watching these, and it wouldn't have even been available when I was watching these, which shows you, I think that's how it was in America. I mean, it was like that in America for a lot of things, but we would rather have English dub versions than anything else, and I think it rings true that, I mean, until much more recently, within the last 20 years, we haven't had versions of these films in their original forms. You kind of have to appreciate the English stuff. You have to overlook what they did to the films and all this. Because without that, we don't have Godzilla in the United States, really. Uh, maybe in the Japanese-American communities we had it. But it's not going to go on to be the juggernaut that it was without these American versions. So yeah, I'm torn on that because the... Original versions are for sure the best, but there's something about those English dubs and remembering watching those. Now, the problem with those, I don't have a problem with an English dub. A lot of them are bad, but I'll watch a Giallo. I'll watch, you know, a Godzilla film in an English dub. The problem is, is that a lot of times content was cut. If content wasn't cut, I don't really mind either way. I mean, the Italian or the Japanese versions are going to be better of those two. But I can deal with a bad dub. What I can't deal with are changes to the film and the story that kind of make it not as... It's not what it originally was intended to be. But Godzilla is an incredibly... If you haven't watched any Godzilla films at all, and if you haven't watched any other, this is probably the one that you've probably most likely seen. This is a very good place to start for the series. So I'll be talking about that as we go through each one, but Godzilla, there's 
you know, it's an absolute classic. It's an absolute monster of a monster movie. So yeah, let's see what happens next, because this is a very, very weird turn for Toho and how they actually get started into Godzilla. So after Godzilla would be Godzilla Raids again. And in November of 1954, during a welcome home party for Mori, who was the, again, the executive producer, Tanaka, who was the producer on the first film, was told to start working on producing a sequel due to the success of the original. Honda wasn't available to direct, and instead of waiting, Mori told Tanaka to choose someone else. He was afraid of losing momentum from the first film. This is important because this is the only one of those original, like, six, I think the first six films, that Honda didn't direct. Moti Yoshi Oda was selected due to his willingness to direct B-movies and his experience with special effects-heavy movies. Many historians look back on this as a signaling that Toho wanted to make Godzilla into a quick cash grab rather than having it as a series of artistic films like the original was. So you remember they put so much work into making the first film and making it go against what critics were usually, you know, criticizing, and putting all this marketing effects and everything else into play, well, now they knew what kind of success they could have, and they're trying to rush out a sequel while the getting's good. Tsuburaya was back in charge of special effects for this one, and reportedly gave the go-ahead to use slowed-down footage that was captured for some of the scenes. So what happened was... There were three cameras that were used to film. The mix-up was caused during filming when two of the three cameras were set at a high speed while the third was accidentally left at 18 frames a second, causing some of the footage they gathered to be at a slower speed. Well, Subaraya said, that's okay, go ahead with it. Now, whether that's him just saying like, yeah, we don't want to redo this again, or we don't have the time or the money to do this again, I lean towards the latter. But um, Nakajima was back as Godzilla, and Tezuka played Anguirus. New lighter suits were made this time around, and they were designed to specifically fit their body types. So a lot better, maybe a lot less strain on them. This would lead to much more fluid movements during filming. It wasn't all easy, though, because Tezuka had to crawl on his knees with his feet showing for Anguirus, and to cover this up, they had to, you know, put in trees and other scenery down by Anguirus' feet, so I don't think we ever see Anguirus' feet. And I'm thinking, when I was watching, you know, Destroy All Monsters, I don't think we see his feet there either, so (laughs) it's the same kind of thing. That's what they call movie magic, right? Uh, There was also a motor in the Godzilla suit that controlled the eyes, you know, on top of the Godzilla suit and the head, that caused Nakajima to be in pain any time he had to jump in the suit. Godzilla Raids Again would release in Japan on April 24th of 1955. The movie ended up selling 8 million fewer tickets than Godzilla, but it was still a small-scale success. I mean, not everything is going to be the most successful Toho film ever made, and Godzilla is obviously leaps and bounds better than this movie. It still managed, however, to rank 4th for Toho for that year, and 10th of all time. So even with 8 million less than Godzilla, that tells you how big of a success Godzilla was. Sold 8 million fewer tickets and was still the 10th best Toho film of all time. It was brought to American-Japanese-speaking theaters before King of the Monsters would release in the U.S. So the Japanese-Americans got to see the original Gojira and Godzilla Raids again before we even saw the English version, King of the Monsters. 
Toho critics and the public didn't really care for the movie. Tanaka even admits that they didn't give the crew anywhere near enough time to make the film great. So, you've got a rush job here. You've got a sequel where Mori just sees dollar signs and is like, hey, push this thing out, let's make some money. How often does that ever work? It hardly ever works. If they would have given them a little more time, and I mean, we're going to see a gap. This thing came out in 1955. It was rushed out the door. You remember Godzilla came out in 19, late 1954. This thing was pushed out. And what happens there is we get this gap. We get this pushed out right after Godzilla. We don't see another Godzilla film until 1962. We would see other Toho films that would later become part of the Godzilla-verse, and that's another thing I want to talk about is this MonsterVerse. And we'll talk about that with the next movie for sure. But let's talk about the American version. So the same people who released King of the Monsters acquired Godzilla Raids again and at first attempted to use the monster footage to turn it into a new film titled The Volcano Monsters. Godzilla would now be a female T-Rex as the two would be referred to as dinosaurs instead of you know monsters or kaiju or whatever else. Fortunately, this idea was nixed after ABPT Pictures Corp. closed in 1957, and a dubbed version was planned instead. They changed the name to Gigantus, the Fire Monster. The name change, and this is interesting, um, it shows you how much other countries, and that once again to go back to Italian films, Italian filmmakers didn't care. They'll make a sequel that has absolutely nothing to do with the original. The Japanese filmmakers here clearly didn't care either. But in America, no, this won't do. The name change was mainly due to Godzilla clearly being killed in that first movie. And you can't just bring him back without any explanation. I mean, that's going to drive people nuts. So <laughs> that's an interesting uh, culture difference because, you know, I see all the time people who are familiar with American uh, sequels, which a lot of times are, you know, they pick up where the other one left off. That doesn't always happen with other countries' sequels, and sometimes Americans have a hard time wrapping their head around that, but it's fine. Just go with it and watch the movie, right? They didn't want to confuse audiences, so they treated Godzilla as a new monster named Gigantus. Interesting, but I don't think it could have made this movie, you know, much worse. So, the movie played as a double bill with teenagers from outer space, starting on May 24th, 1959. The English dub was devised as a loose adaptation of the original because they never really received a copy of the original Japanese script. At one point, they even inserted the word banana oil because they couldn't find anything else to sync up with lip movements. This caused the crew working on it to laugh when it was read on set. So I think we haven't got into this a lot, but watching these dubs growing up, you know, that was always the joke between my uncle and I that they they weren't matched up with the mouths at all in some of these movies. It was insane. You'd still see the mouth going, and they had been done talking in the English version for, like, 30 seconds. No, they didn't line these things up at all, and it's so funny that they cared so much earlier on that they put in a word banana oil to match up with the lip movements. Due to a dispute between Warner Brothers and the president of Pacific Theaters, who sold the rights to them, the movie all but disappeared from TV and theaters until the rights reverted back to Toho in the 80s. And it's funny because this is one, I don't know, I'm sure I saw this one earlier on, but I was thinking this is maybe one of the ones that was harder to find when I was younger, and maybe not, because this is one I wasn't too familiar with. 
you know, I always remembered the names of the other ones, but I don't know. Maybe this one was lost in the U.S. for a while. Either way, all joking aside, yes, this isn't a great movie, but I don't think it's terrible. There's still some fun you can have with it. I threw this on the other day when my daughter and I were downstairs, and it's not a terrible movie. It's nothing great, and the characters are kind of bland, and you can kind of tell that's because they rushed this out. I don't have any huge problems with it. It's just kind of there. It's not something I hate. Is it something I'm going to rush to watch again? It's probably down the list. I mean, if we look if we look at just the 15 core Godzilla films from the Showa era, and by the way, we will be, that's how many we will be going down through this honor, 15 of these plus two standalone films that would play into Godzilla later. But this would be definitely on that bottom third of films for sure for me. It's okay. If you're a Godzilla completist, you're obviously going to watch this. This is not a good place to start. This is not... This should be lower on your list. And I will go ahead and release a bigger list. You know, a list of my Showa era rankings of all these films after this episode drops. So keep a lookout for that. But, oh, and while I'm thinking about it, before we pivot on to the next movie, I am running and will run the series of, you know, this big kaiju battle over on social media. So on Facebook and Twitter, I started it on Sunday the 7th, and it'll run for weeks and weeks. Um, As we decide this, the first round is going on as I'm recording this. By the time this releases, we will probably be into the second round. The first round's just this shorter round. But anyway, there's polls uh, that are going up, and they'll be up about every day. I might do every other day when we're getting into the bigger ones. But yeah, you can head over to the Facebook group or over on Twitter and vote in those to decide who's going to be the ultimate kaiju. Now, these are excluding Godzilla because I feel like Godzilla is just too big and he's too well-known and I don't know if anything else has a chance of beating him. So I don't think that would make it fair. I just want to see what are the better non-Godzilla kaijus? What does the community think? And I'll be giving the results of these as we continue on. Right now, at this point, we had Hedera from Godzilla vs. Hedera taking down Varen from Varen the Unbelievable and also Destroy All Monsters. And um, and then we had, in a space battle, Space Godzilla taking down Space Amoeba. So these are going to continue on. It's a fun little thing I just want to do. I don't care if I don't get a ton of votes or interaction in these polls. I just love seeing what people think. So let me know your comments when you're going over and voting on these things and let me know who you think would win and why and that'll continue going on so next and this is um i said we wouldn't get another godzilla film until 62 and that's true but we would get some godzilla adjacent films and the first one would be rodan in 1956 so these would be we talk about the monsterverse today but toho really with their godzilla films created their own shared universe their own mcu if you will And it was, I don't think it was necessarily intentional because they were just doing a lot of one-off monster movies. One of those was Rodan. Unfortunately, we don't know a whole lot about the production of Rodan. I expect that to change in the near future. Uh, The reason being is that Criterion and Janus Films have the right to Rodan. It's over on the Criterion channel, I think, and it's over on HBO Max. But they haven't released a disc of this yet, so I think we're going to know more about this in the future. But this is the first, you know, this came before Mothra, and Rodan would be worked into Godzilla sequels. Unfortunately, like I said, we don't have a whole lot on this. 
we only know that our poor stuntman friend Nakajima fell over 20 feet when he was when a suspension wire broke. Poor guy had a rough career. He was okay, but you don't want to fall 20 feet. Also, the film was a pretty big success when it was released in the U.S. in 1957. It received a huge West Coast advertising campaign from the NBC channel out there, and apparently did pretty pretty good. So, I think Rodan, overall, is a really cool movie. It kind of differentiates itself. Yeah, they don't show a lot of close-ups on Rodan, and there's a reason they don't show a lot of close-ups on Rodan. But this is much more like Godzilla, and we would see this a lot when these characters are introduced. It's much more like Godzilla, and we're focusing on the human characters and what's going on around them, and we get a little bit of Rodan action. We don't really have, you know, it's really the military versus Rodan and what they're going to figure out how to stop Rodan. So it's a really cool film if you haven't seen it. And Rodan plays it in heavily to the, you know, Godzilla films. There are two standalones, and the next one will be the one we're talking about as well. Uh, Rodan and Mothra, and those characters would pretty much become synonymous with Godzilla films, even though Mothra had Mothra had her own Mothra movie, and then would have, you know, the rebirth of Mothra trilogy in the Heisei era. Those are some some pretty important films, and we'd get other stuff, like Destroy All Monsters would have a lot of random Toho kaiju in it as well. So they weren't afraid to bring all their monsters together, and we'll talk about that a little more when we talk about that film, because there was supposed to be even more for it, but yeah, I'm hoping we see Rodan released on the Criterion Collection. Now, is Rodan a good place to start? I think it's I think it's a pretty good place to start because I think it's similar to Godzilla. It's nowhere near as good as Godzilla 1954, but I think it's a really good movie that is pretty grounded in its approach and we don't get, you know, these massive kaiju battles yet. So, I would definitely recommend that one if you haven't seen that one. All right. So, as I mentioned, we would not get another Godzilla film until 1962. But we would get one of the most crucial characters in Godzilla history in a movie in 1961, and that is Mothra. So Mothra was directed by Ishiro Honda, as was Rodan. I did not say that. But both of those were directed by Honda. And what happened with this one? So during the summer of 1960, producer Tomoyuki Tanaka hired writer Shinichiro Nakamura to put the script together for a new kaiju film. He worked with two other writers who each wrote a part of the story, so they kind of split it into thirds, and they each wrote a section. The story was called The Glowing Fairies and Mothra. To come up with the name of the movie, Tanaka just combined the Japanese word for moth and added a ra at the end, like Gojira. So, very creative stuff, you know. We've got Gojira, which is a combination of the Japanese words of gorilla and whale, and then you've got Mothra, which is moth, and then just adding a ra on the end. That would become a popular trend, and not just with Toho Kaiju, but I mean, we'd even see like Gamera coming out, and you know, he would fight Zigra eventually, and I don't know if uh, if Mumra gets his name from that, but we'll uh, we'll table that one for now. Most likely not. So a moth was chosen because Tanaka wanted a creature that would go through a transformation. He was also responsible for creating the Shobajin, which are very important in Godzilla lore, and I think one of the things, like I said at the top of this show, that really make the series pop and feel like it is this natural, weird, you know, uniquely Japanese thing. 
he came up with the word, um, which just means small beauties, because he thought small fairies from Infant Island was too long. And, you know, usually he'd be right, but uh, some of these Japanese titles for things go on a little long, so... But I really like the word shobajin, even though maybe it's, you know, it just means small beauties, so <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, to cast the shobajin, there was a vocal duo called the Peanuts, and they were identical twins. And Tanaka really wanted them in this role because, you know, he really thought it would bring popularity to the film and help it out. Well, they were cast in the roles, but they had to film their scenes separately due to other obligations. So throughout most of the movie, they're not on screen with other characters when they're actually there on set. The original ending of this movie was set to have Mothra destroying a city, but Toho advised Honda to film a much more budget-friendly ending. However, they had a contract with Columbia for the American release of this that stated that the finale had to be set in an American-style city, you know, to appeal to American audiences. So, Toho got overruled on that. They requested the change from Columbia and told Honda to proceed with the new ending. But Columbia ultimately declined, and they wasted all of that money filming that extra stuff and had to, you know, film the bigger budget scenes anyway. The trailers for this smartly didn't advertise Mothra, but instead would focus on the Shobajin. We would see something similarly of, like, hiding Mothra in another film that would come up later. So it was released on July 30th, 1961 in Japan, and Columbia's dub came out in the United States at May 10th, 1962. So the gap's starting to shrink a little bit on these releases. So Mothra. Yeah, when compared to Rodan, I mean, I think Godzilla, Rodan, and Mothra are these very, you know, they're isolated. You don't have a lot of monster battles going on. What you have is the establishment of a character or a kaiju in this instance, and you get this more serious story. I guess Mothra is a little less serious than the other two, but you're getting, you know, a, a grounded-ish story as much as it can be, and they're not having these insane, like, knockdown dragout fights with other people in monster suits. This would be pretty much the end of that, though. We wouldn't really see another film yeah, that would, in the Godzilla universe, that is, and when I say Godzilla universe, Rodan and Mothra are really the only ones I'm counting as these outside monsters that were brought in because they pay, play a huge role. Whereas someone like Varen or Manda, they only come in and like destroy all monsters or whatever, final wars or whatever you get. But yeah, so that's what I mean when I'm talking about the Godzilla franchise. So this is the last time we would see this, I think until... Return of Godzilla in 1984, but that is for another day. Yeah, Mothra is an excellent film. Once again, it's Honda here in these early days. I don't think here early on that when it was Godzilla or these kaiju creatures and Honda teamed up together, I don't think there was really a miss. I mean, they did really, they did a really good job of establishing this stuff, and Honda had the money to do it. I think what happened later on, and we'll get to that, is I think the money starts to dry up a little bit. And I think that's what leads to some of the issues. But Mothra is an excellent film. If you were going to start with something, you could absolutely start with Mothra. So 
you know, Godzilla, Rodan, Mothra, those three standalone movies are excellent places to start if you're trying to dip your toes into kaiju. Okay, so let's recenter ourselves because we have another very interesting movie coming up. Where are we on the timeline? So we had Godzilla in 54, we had Godzilla Raids again in 55, not directed by Honda. And then we had Rodan and Mothra, both directed by Honda. Honda would continue for the next several films and into, you know, as well as with um, Eji Tsuburaya. And they would team up for King Kong vs. Godzilla in 1962. The movie started as a William O'Brien project, and William O'Brien did the original stop motion for the original King Kong. So kind of a big deal, especially considering how King Kong influenced the creation of Godzilla in the first place. He came up with a treatment for King Kong versus Frankenstein. You know, we weren't quite into the monster mashups at this point. We were starting to dip our toes. So pretty cool that they're trying to start that thing off. So he came up with a treatment for King Kong versus Frankenstein, and that would take place in San Francisco. He took the idea to RKO, who, you know, had released King Kong, to get their permission to use King Kong, and then proceeded to try to find a home for the project. The story was changed slightly, and the name uh, was changed from first King Kong versus the Ginkgo to King Kong versus Prometheus. And that was pretty much because they couldn't use Frankenstein due to Universal having dibs on that. So... But they went back to this idea of, I think, the original novel, Frankenstein, with the Prometheus thing. I think Versus the Ginkgo was just a working title, until they came up with something better. Producer John Beck came in and finally found a home for this film at Toho, who always wanted to make a King Kong movie, and you could probably guess that, based on everything we've talked about so far. However, they didn't want to include Frankenstein in this, although they would do a future movie with a Frankenstein in it. And they swapped out Frankenstein for Godzilla and had the script rewritten. This was all done without O'Brien knowing any of this, and he attempted to sue Beck. However, he didn't have enough money to do it, and would sadly pass away in his home on November 1962. And, you know, he never received a credit for his idea once this film released. That's a pretty sad story, but... Unfortunately, Hollywood's littered with them. His wife held the belief that King Kong vs. Frankenstein and that whole ordeal was what really led to his death. Again, just a very somber story to bring us down a peg or two, but uh, let's keep going on with this saga. So Marion C. Cooper, who was the director of King Kong, was furious when he heard about the movie and filed a lawsuit in 1963 to halt the film's distribution. He'd always been against the use of a man in a suit, you know, a gorilla suit, for King Kong. He hated that idea. Well, it turns out he wasn't the sole owner of the King Kong character like he thought that he was, and the lawsuit was dismissed. So, with this movie, Honda had a specific goal in mind. He wanted to critique, um, in this film, the over-sensationalized TV industry in Japan at the time, which saw each network trying to outdo the insanity of another's programming in order to get ratings. It's a huge battle. I mean, we've got the same thing going on in the United States at the time, in the 50s, when everyone's fighting for TV, and you know, TV is the big thing in the industry, and movies kind of taking a more of a back seat when you get into the 50s. But I digress. 
Eji Tsuburaya was planning on moving on to new projects, but he dropped them all when this movie was announced. The studio wanted the monsters to be as funny as possible when they fought. Tsuburaya was on board with this as he wanted it to appeal to children and a wider audience to give the film, you know, a, lar- a larger reach. It's said that the, you know, the special effects crew weren't in favor of this and couldn't believe the things that they were asked to do for this film. Honda himself hated this aspect of the movie and was quoted as saying, I don't think a monster should ever be a comical character. The public is more entertained when the great King Kong strikes fear into the hearts of the little characters. You got a feel for Honda in this because he wanted to make a King Kong movie, Toho wanted to make a King Kong movie, and they make it this comical King Kong movie and not serious at all, which we know up to this point, Honda's a very serious dude when he's making these Godzilla films and Rodan and Mothra and all that. I get it. I get it. And yeah, I don't agree that that's the way to take it either. We'll see that be kind of the downfall of another kaiju as we continue on through this series. No matter what he personally believed, though, this would be the starting point for the series to turn into a kid-friendly direction that wouldn't take its monsters so serious. Toho initially planned to shoot in Sri Lanka, but after paying RKO $220,000 for the rights to King Kong, they had to scale back and move the film to a Japanese island instead. The film would end up having a very large $420,000 budget, and, you know, over half of that goes to pay for King Kong. So you can imagine, that gives you your starting point. If you've never seen this movie, you know, think about how they're turning the characters comical and most of their budget is paying to just get the rights for King Kong, or a majority. So, yeah. Nakajima was back as Godzilla, and he was paired with Soichi Hirose as King Kong. The two were given free reign over their actions and based most of their fight scenes on pro wrestling. And I think you can tell that going forward. There's a lot of pro wrestling styles stuff going on in these kaiju fights, and it's utterly ridiculous. And this one takes it over the top, I will tell you. Again, if you haven't seen this, there are these giant octopus, you know, there's this giant octopus attack in the movie. To create this, they used four real octopuses, and they get them to move by blowing hot air on them. And the funny story here is, you know, after filming, three of these were released... And the unlucky other one went home with Subaraya as his dinner. Bad day for that poor octopus. He's got hot air blown on him and then he's going home to be eaten. A scene where Godzilla destroyed a statue in a rampage had to be cut. They were afraid people would think that they were anti-Buddhist if they kept the destruction in. So this is apparently, and I'm not familiar with this, but this is apparently a famous like Buddhist kind of statue in Japan. And yeah, they were afraid they would get some pushback from the Buddhist community if they did that. Uh, Godzilla was still a villain at this time, and King Kong was seen as the bigger draw, so naturally, he was given top billing. Toho also maintained that, you know, King Kong was the winner of the fight, even if it seemed like it was a draw. I'm gonna stop real quick. It's funny that we, you know, Godzilla was a villain at this point. He gets the bigger draw. We see this happen with a couple of movies. You know, first we get Mothra versus Godzilla, and we get King Kong versus Godzilla, then in the 90s, we get Godzilla versus Mothra, and we get Godzilla versus Kong. Now, the Mothra thing, I think, is because, you know, it's been flipped at that point, and Godzilla's the much bigger name. You wouldn't really start with a Mothra. Now, Godzilla versus Kong is much more interesting. I wonder if, and they don't say King Kong in there either, 
so I'm wondering if this is like a rights issue where they can't do that or I don't know what that is, but very interesting that you would do that because I think, I mean, I still myself, I'm blind to this, so I don't know if King Kong would still be the bigger draw or not because I love Godzilla so much. But it's interesting to think about whether that was changed because Godzilla's the bigger draw now or because there was some rights issue and they didn't want to put it the other way around. Anyway, let's wrap this little fact session up. It was released on August 11th, 1962 in Japan. Okay, I said that let's wrap this up, but this got me thinking about something here. Think about these release dates we've had so far. Yeah, the original Godzilla was October. Then we had April, I believe, and then July and August. So we're going to see a trend coming later on where these movies would come out at a very different time of the year, and you have to think maybe they're trying to hit with different audiences based on the time they're releasing these. You know, right now we've got scattered releases throughout the year, and I don't know what the climate was in Japan as far as, like, you know, we hadn't had summer blockbusters, so I don't know if it really mattered back then, but I tell you what will matter, and that is if you're releasing the movie around New Year's, because New Year's is the biggest holiday in Japan for the entire year. So that's like our Christmas movie season. You know how we have, you know, you're probably together with your family and you've got sometimes three or four big releases coming out around Christmas and that's the equivalent. So we would see that trend starting to go forward. I don't know if that's because of it's a shift more to family friendly stuff or it's a shift because this is their big property and they want it out at the biggest time of the year. I think it's the latter, but again, let's continue. (laughs) In the American version, several edits and new footage was added to make it feel more American. They wanted to convey the film like it was a newscast and added a commentator from the UN. Yeah, smart. Very smart. Um, Anytime you want to change something to make it more American, it's great. It's going to be good. So Beck spent $12,000 on this version to kind of make it a more Americanized version and then sold it to Universal for $200,000 where they would release it nationwide on June 26th, 1963. Funny that Universal takes that deal because at that point in time, you know, Universal used... <laughs> we we started off with King Kong versus Frankenstein, and Universal was like, no, you can't use Frankenstein. And then now we've got Universal buying the rights to King Kong versus Godzilla, which was supposed to be King Kong versus Frankenstein. Anyway, so King Kong versus Godzilla... This is one of the ones I did not rewatch this time around, but I will tell you it is much more of a comical film. It is much more goofy. There are, you know, scenes with characters being swung around by their tails. There are scenes of, I believe if I remember right, playing volleyball with like a rock. It's a weird movie. You kind of have that mix up. And this would be the first time that America would, and this is different than even before, later on, because at this point, you've got America directly coming up with this idea, creating the idea for this movie, and then bringing it into Japan instead of that idea being incubated at Toho. This is not a good place to start at all. I would not recommend it. I think it has a very different feel than a lot of the Godzilla filmography. And I mean, I like this movie just fine. I think it's a, you know, fun kaiju movie just don't be expecting any kind of masterpiece going into this one 
yeah, I mean, it's a good movie. It's a fine movie, but I wouldn't put it near the top of your watch list. So what's next? We had King Kong vs. Godzilla in 62. Well, if we move down the timeline, we would have to skip a year, which was, you know, a shorter amount of time than we had been going before. And you have to think, like, Toho just probably doesn't want to, you know, they're doing Rodan, they're doing Mothra. They probably just don't want to keep milking the Godzilla cow until, you know, we get to this point. But 1964 would see the release of Mothra vs. Godzilla. So after King Kong vs. Godzilla was a success, Toho was ready to pair him up with another popular monster, him being Godzilla. Mothra was chosen, and Honda and Toho worked to aim the film at a general audience. So at least it's not being geared towards kids. I would always prefer if you're choosing to, you know, the Rebirth of Mothra series is geared towards children. I would always uh, caution that it's better to aim it at more of a general audience than specifically at children, because trust me, when you do that, you get some really bad results, especially with some of these kaiju movies. At the time, the Japanese movie industry was waging a war against the increasingly popularity of TV in Japan, similar to what I just said earlier, to what Hollywood went to through in the 50s. But, you know, this would be the kind of film that would draw you to a theater. It's a big, I'm going to use the term tokusatsu, which is just a very special effects heavy Japanese film. So that's what you would probably be going to the theaters for, are these spectacles. It was originally supposed to take place right after Mothra, with the same villains. And in the early drafts, it was Godzilla who was going to wash ashore and instead of Mothra's egg. The film would mark the last time that Godzilla would be the antagonist of a Showa-era film. Which is important because, like I said, earlier you're going to get this shift to where Godzilla is now the big headliner and the uh, fan favorite. It released in Japan on April 29th of 1964. In May of 64, Henry Saperstein acquired the U.S. rights and sold it to AIP as Godzilla vs. the Giant Moth. And here's where we get into some interesting marketing techniques. So AIP, who would be no strangers to, you know, marketing films, released it on August 26th under the name of Godzilla vs. the Thing, which is a very, I feel like, iconic or notorious <laughs> name for this one. The change was made to build mystery around its around Godzilla's opponent, and they even had a poster made to show Godzilla and a censored Mothra to keep the mystery. Now, that's pretty cool. That's a pretty cool idea, no matter what you think of changing around a movie, is you change it to the thing because you don't want anyone to know what it is, as opposed to like the giant moth, and then you just black it out. And I think that would draw in much more people than if they knew Godzilla was fighting a giant moth going in. That's just me. I mean, Mothra is awesome, but that's just me. Toho actually shot some American-specific footage during filming, and there weren't actually many edits to the AIP version. I think you start the trend of Toho kind of catering to, and we saw that with King Kong vs. Godzilla and the original Mothra, of course, but they're taking the money and they're kind of trying to appeal to the American audience with these as well, because, you know, that's a much bigger market than Japan in the film industry. Mothra vs. Godzilla is a really good movie. I think it's one of the better Showa-era films. I think it's in that top tier. And it's got, yeah, it's a little, 
I don't think this one would be as crazy or as, you know, goofy as we would see in the next one. But basically in this one, you know, you've got, like we said, Mothra's egg washes ashore. Mothra wants that back. So do the Shobajin and the people of Infant Island. And, you know, Godzilla shows up. Maybe this is a little bit about corporate greed and, <laughs> and how that happens. But you still have very serious human characters in this and people pleading with Mothra's help. You know, you have just like anything, you've got the, the evil corporate people and then you've got the good guys who are trying to do the right thing. It's a very good movie. If this would be the first of the, I'm going to use another term here, of um, Kaiju Ega. That just means a film featuring multiple Kaiju fighting. But that's the first one of those that we would see with purely Godzilla, purely Japanese characters or monsters. And they wouldn't stop. Mothra vs. Godzilla is a very good movie. Definitely check that one out. So next on the timeline, we're actually staying in the same year. And this gets into this thing where, and this wasn't intentional. I mean, it wasn't planned for this to happen, but this is the first time we actually get that New Year's holiday release for a Godzilla film. Well, the next movie that also released in 64 is Ghidorah, the Three-Headed Monster. Unlike Mothra and unlike Rodan, we get a creature that is introduced solely in a Godzilla film. And yeah, you could argue that Anguirus is like that, but um, yeah, man. Anguirus is small potatoes compared to the other guys, unfortunately. I like Anguirus. I'm not saying anything against Anguirus, but... Ghidorah was rushed into production. It was always going to be the next Godzilla movie, but it was rushed into production after Akira Kurosawa's Redbeard fell well behind schedule. And, you know, that was the other thing. Toho was doing a lot of Kurosawa films. But they needed a replacement film to fill their New Year's holiday slate, so they thought... Let's try it out with Godzilla. At this point, there was no turning back from the monster mashups, like I just had mentioned. They had proven to be so successful with the last two films, they needed to keep that momentum going. This time around, though, we would see a ramping up, as this film would include not only Ghidorah and Godzilla, but Mothra and Rodan as well. These three would become kind of a staple for future Godzilla films, and we even saw that in 2019, with Michael Doherty's uh, King of the Monsters. Although, weirdly enough, Rodan and Anguirus kind of got left behind when we moved to the Heisei era. I mean, they were the more dinosaur-like creatures, I guess, if you want to look at it that way. Maybe they're the, you know, the blander of the <laughs> designs, but uh, moving on. Ghidorah design was based on Orochi from Japanese mythology. This will not be the last time in these series of episodes we'll be talking about Orochi, but that is a character from Japanese mythology. It is an eight-headed dragon, and Ghidorah was based on that. Honda had a real issue with anthropomorphizing the kaiju in the film. He agreed to use the Shobajin as their translators, which plays out in an incredibly goofy scene, but had to force himself to even shoot that scene. You can see where Honda is kind of waning at this point. He's losing interest in what they're doing with these movies. More so because I think he wants to take them a little more seriously. But I'm not speaking for Honda. I don't know what was really going through Honda's head at this point. Akiko Wakabayashi 
played the Venetian in the film, and was temporarily blinded by the glowing effect used by her character. And Wakabayashi had it a little rough because she was also working all night on another project at the same time that she was doing this film and wasn't sleeping. To help with this, Honda allowed her to sleep on the gurney while filming the shock therapy scenes in the film. So that was nice of Honda. Give her give her a little rest, but probably couldn't. It's probably hard to act when you, you know, are running on zero sleep. She said while playing the character, she tried to act as if she were sleepwalking while in the Venetian persona. And I am saying, you know, Venetian as in from Venus, not for <laughs> not any other use of the term. So I just want to make that clear because I don't think I've really gone over that. And also with this, you know, she tried not to look anyone in the face to strengthen her performance. And I think it really works. I love that aspect of this film. It does get a little bit into the crazier territory, but like I talked about earlier, this is the first time we have a creature coming from space, and then we have a prophet from Venus that is inhabiting another character. It's a little crazy, but I think it all works in this one, and I think she gives an incredible performance in this. But as for Ghidorah, not everything was great because, you know, it took as many as seven people at a time in the rafters operating the suit. The heads would constantly get tangled and light would reflect off the wires. And this led to a lot of delays in the project and in production. Cut. We gotta untangle the Gitara heads. You know, <laughs> I could see that going on. It, but it would finally release in Japan. You know, they were already, like we said, on this deadline to get this thing out. I'm surprised it came out to be one of my favorites of the Showa era just because of how rushed it was. They're already trying to rush to hit that date. Um, it does release on December 20th of 1964. Um, as with all these, we'll talk about the American release here. Continental Distributing handled the American release, and it opened on September 29th of 1965. Many scenes were removed or rearranged for this version, like usual. And interestingly, author David Collot said that the American version was superior in some ways, as it tightened the film and corrected continuity errors. So you don't hear that often. I mean, I haven't watched the American version of this in a long time. So maybe? I don't know. I could see them trying to get, here we are again, correcting continuity stuff and trying to tighten the pace of the film. I can see that. But a lot of these early American versions are, you know, very much shortened when compared to their Japanese counterparts. I think a lot of these are like 10 minutes shorter. So that's when I get into the territory of I don't want to mess with it, even if it makes maybe a better film. Speaking of, you know, I've talked about this as we're going through it. I really like this one. I don't like the scene where, and this will be a hanging point for me going forward, but I don't really like the scene where the Shobajin are translating for the monsters. I think we can kind of tell what the monsters are saying to each other. Yeah, I... But I hate how goofy that scene is with Mothra kind of spraying the string or webbing or whatever it is in their faces and getting try to getting Rodan and Godzilla to work together against Ghidorah. That's neither here nor there, though, because the movie as a whole, the human character stuff is very interesting. Like I said, I love this prophet from Venus idea. You have some scenes that are, again, probably thrown in there for padding, and we have this in a lot with... You have the you have the person from Venus, but she's also supposed to be a princess. Um, you know, she's going around making these prophecies of this is going to happen and this is going to happen and don't get on that boat and all this stuff. 
well, um, she also is the princess of a country and has some people after her, and that's another part of the film. This is a really good one. I wouldn't necessarily start with this one, but this is one that you must see if you're watching these Godzilla films and you haven't. This is probably one that's more likely to have been seen because you have the introduction of Ghidorah um, for the first time, and then, you know, we would get Ghidorah again in the next movie, but yeah, this is one of my favorites, and I really like this one. Moving down the timeline, we will slide to... 1965 as this you know we began probably this would be the beginning of the yearly releases because we did have two in 64 so they made up for 63 and then we'll have some yearly releases for a decent amount of time going forward this is the last honda directed film of you know for a couple of movies he would take a couple years off and we'll get into that and what he's doing during those years later but this film is 1965's invasion of the astro monster The Astro Monster, it's Ghidorah. (laughs) Sorry to spoil that for anyone, but I don't think that's a big deal to not know that going in. Henry Saperstein returned again to grab the American version of this film. United Productions of America tasked him with finding quality monster films from overseas to, you know, pad their lineups. Saperstein was involved in this one from the beginning, and became it became his first of three co-productions with Toho. The other two would be Frankenstein Conquers the World and War of the Gargantuas, which I will be talking about in a later episode. Saperstein convinced them that their scripts had been too formulaic and that they should get right into the action quicker. It was known at the time that a lot of these films started with like a press conference or some kind of unrelated, you know, monologue or something at the beginning of the film, and they took forever to get into the actual action. Um, He just was not a huge fan of um, Shinichi Sekizawa's films and his writing, I guess. The movie would also include the very first alien invasion in a Godzilla film, and we would see that in so many kaiju films and... In some Godzilla films going forward, usually when it involved, you know, King Ghidorah, because he is not the sole kaiju that comes from space, but the main kaiju that comes from space, I would say. Saperstein also convinced them to use an American actor in the production, and that would be Nick Adams. This would also happen in the other two films that Saperstein worked on with Toho that I had mentioned. The film had a much lower budget than previous entries, and I think you can tell. That's my opinion. (laughs) Which led them to have to reuse footage and have smaller scale destruction scenes. This would be, you know, the advent of, for better or for worse, there are some good movies that come out of the, you know, the reusing of stock footage, but we'd get a lot of reused assets from other Godzilla films, and you could do this because a lot of the same monsters were appearing in these movies. Honda commented on the matter, saying it was a vicious cycle of time and budget. If we recycled scenes from previous movies, we would cut the effects budget. But then we received complaints from our fans saying, it looks weird, it's not fresh. We could fool the audience for a little while, but eventually they would know the trick and stop coming to see the shows. Then the studio would think the special effects films don't sell anymore. It's no wonder we could not make anything good around that period. It is a sad story. 
you feel for Honda and you feel what he's going through. Like I said, he would take a couple of movies off from the series and go on to do another film. But yeah, there we see this same thing. It's a fallacy, right? It's a um, you big budget. You're saying big big budget effects movies are failing and no one wants to see them. But the reason they're failing is because you're putting less money in them and the fans aren't getting what they want out of them. Kind of spelling the beginning of the decline of the Godzilla films. And I I don't say that necessarily in quality, although that is sometimes the case, but a lot of times in at least returns. To create the weird dialect used by the aliens, they mixed French and German with Ryanosuke Akutagawa's Kappa language, which I have no idea what that is. I did not look it up, I'm sorry, but that's <laughs> those were what they mixed together to make this language. The movie released in Japan on December 19th of 1965. It wouldn't release in the United States until July 29th of 1970, though. When it did release, the versions were nearly identical, but it's said that both this movie and War of the Gargantuas were shelved for a while because UPA thought they didn't have any potential. So that's where we kind of see the break in that, too, is it's not getting sooner American releases, which I'm sure is having an effect. I don't know. I mean, they're just paying for the rights for these, but I'm sure the Americans are paying less for the rights when they're acquiring these films now. Uh, Invasion of the Astro Monster is not really my bag. It's not one of my favorites. It's okay. It's more King Ghidorah, which I think was a decision made to save on budgetary matters and do cut corners. But uh, this movie just doesn't work for me. The aliens don't work for me. It's just a weird movie. There are plenty of other better kaiju films with aliens invading than Invasion of the Astro Monster. This is their first real myth. I'm saying miss, but I think it's still a decent movie. But I would just say, you know, it's better than Godzilla Raids again for sure. And it still has that feeling of a Godzilla film, but it's a little different. It feels like a little more American sci-fi style. And yeah, it's okay. It's all right. Again, there is an American actor in this, which is very different. I will say seeing an American in the film. But anyway, that is Invasion of the Astro Monster. And we have come to the end of, you know, Honda's relationship with Godzilla for a couple of movies. And it's really the turning point because we see kind of a line change, to use a hockey term. We've got a new group coming in, and that is in 1966, Ebera, Horror of the Deep. Great name. Love the title of that movie. But the movie itself, now this is one I'm going to preface right up front, is I haven't seen this one in a long time. I chose not to re-watch this one because I just ran out of time. I went through, I mean, I rewatched. I think... 11 of these 15 core Godzilla Showa films, and I watched for the first time Rodan, um, did not rewatch Mothra. So if we're tallying that up, that's 12 of the 17 movies that I have watched. And I had seen Mothra in the last couple years and uh, King Kong vs. Godzilla in the last couple years. So I think I did pretty good. I mean, I just ran out of time. And Eberah War of the Deep was not on my list to rewatch, or high on my list at least. In their deal with RKO, Toho had the rights to King Kong for five years, which would end in 1967. In 1966, they were looking to make another movie with the character. We don't really know why they waited so long between 
you know, 62 and 66. They were kind of pushing up to the limit. They could have made several God, or King Kong films in this time, but they didn't. The King Kong project was to be titled Operation Robinson Crusoe, King Kong vs. Ebera. <laughs> That's a mouthful. Yeah, if, um, you know, uh, the small fairies or glowing fairies of Infant Island or whatever that was, if that doesn't, that wasn't a mouthful, this certainly was. Anyway, it was set to be a Rankin and Bass co-production, so that's an interesting take as well. Rankin was dead set on Honda directing and Tsuburaya doing the effects. Toho was ready to turn the page and were dead set on Jun Fukada directing and Suabara's protege, Sadamasa Arakawa, doing the special effects. So that was going to be their new drama directing, special effects directing duo. The two couldn't reach an agreement, and it fell through, leaving them with this, you know, hollow script and needing to get a movie out in 1966, as we would see. On a side note, the two would reconcile, though, and the next year they would co-produce King Kong Escapes with Honda directing and Tsuburaya doing the special effects. So they did get what they wanted in the end, Rankin and Bass, that is. Toho liked the script so much that they decided to move forward with it, though, um, and not do a new one. So they're going to use the bones of this script and replace King Kong with Godzilla. It was to be titled the very catchy Godzilla, Ebera, Mothra, Big Duel in the South Sea. Again, (laughs) this is just a Japanese thing. You're just going to have to get used to it. And was set to be their big New Year's blockbuster that year. Whoa, boy, did they put their, their eggs in the wrong basket. No, it's not that bad. If I remember right, it's just... Anyway, uh, this and Son of Godzilla were the only two that would take place on a Pacific island instead of inside Japan itself. Arakawa notes that the effects budget was cut for this one even further. He attributes it to him being less experienced than Tsuburaya, so maybe a little contempt there from Arakawa, but you can't really blame the guy. Fukata wasn't a fan of this movie. When Toho sent him a VHS copy of Godzilla vs. the Sea Monsters, it felt like he was opening an old wound and he didn't want to watch it at all. That's just an interesting aside, but... It was released in Japan on December 17th, 1966, so they got their New Year release, and I think you see this going forward. I remember if I was putting when I was putting together my notes, I think we see a trend of it's just like a day forward each year when they're releasing these movies, just to account for the calendar shifting. But Continental Distributing released this movie as well, uh, they released it directly to TV in 1967 as Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster. It's not known if this ever got any kind of theatrical release, but they know that it did you know, go straight to TV a year later. That kind of tells you of maybe the decline of what's going on in the West as well with Godzilla. Again, I've got nothing further to say about Eberra. I remember it being fine. I mean, he's fighting a giant crustacean. I mean, how um, inventive could that be? But I just did not rewatch it this time. I don't remember it being as bad as a couple of the other movies we're going to talk about here soon. But it's certainly not a standout Godzilla film. So this is two in a row that are misses for me personally. But they're not as bad as the series would go, as I just said. So let's let's continue on and figure out what's going on next. Speaking of Son of Godzilla. Yeah. So for Son of Godzilla, you know, Jun Fukada was back. And so was Arakawa, who I believed, I don't think we would go back to Tsuburaya 
as the special effects director for any of these movies going forward. So that was really his end of the project. He worked on King Kong Escapes, and that was really the end of him working. I don't know if it's the end of him working on kaiju films, but definitely the end of him working on these Godzilla-type movies. Son of Godzilla. Wow. What a movie. What a character. Manila is the... For my money, the jump-the-shark moment of the Godzilla franchise. Wow, is Manila bad. Almost any time you try to make a child Godzilla, child kaiju, it's not going to work. Don't do it. Stop with the Ewoks already. (laughs) Just don't do it. This is what I'm talking about when you're trying to aim things at children. It's not going to hit adults the same way, and it's going to put them off, and it's going to make them... (laughs) think very badly of your movie and not want to watch it, even if there are good aspects. All right, let's get into it. This was another low-budget effort, as you might expect, with the film receiving a much less... with the film receiving much less funding than other monster movies at the time. The same crew for Ebera would return as the A-Team, as they dubbed it, was on King Kong Escapes, and that was Honda and Subaraya. So we've got the B-Team here, is apparently what they're implying. Kazuya Shiba would collaborate with Shinichi Sekazawa on the screenplay, becoming the first woman to write a Godzilla film. The title under the first draft was Two Godzillas Japan SOS. Interesting. But not uncommon, so let's keep going. (laughs) To appeal to the date night crowd, it was decided that a baby Godzilla would be added. The idea was the girls at the time would like the baby Godzilla and think he was cute. This was actually not an uncommon approach at the time. Uh, This was tried by several different things. And this is where you kind of get a difference in traditional Japanese culture and traditional American culture. Because I can tell you right now, whereas Japanese women generally, from what I hear, think that characters like, let's say, like Pokemon or characters like that, kind of these cutesy characters, are very cute. My wife couldn't give one crap about that. Uh, She does not think they are cute. She does not have any affinity for Pokemon or anything of the sort. I think that's just a cultural divide. So when it says date night, I don't think take that in an American sense of date night. I think they are trying to say, you know, what the culture was like in Japan, which is very different. I digress, but I kind of wanted to hit that point without, you know, leaving anyone behind or (laughs) confusing anyone. As who's saying, like, what? My girlfriend's going to go see Godzilla with me because of baby Godzilla? No, it's not going to happen. Fukada stated that they wanted to make the creatures as human-like as possible and focus on the father-son relationship aspects. Bad move. It was noted at the time that Sekizawa was tired of writing the series and was most likely out of monster movie ideas. He had written every release in the series since Mothra, as well as one-off films like Atragon and Varen. Several scenes were cut from the movie that depicted Godzilla being harsh towards Manila. No one is quite sure why, but I'm Thinking personally that Manila may have needed a little more tough love from Godzilla in the film because boy is Manila awful. Okay, I'm going to stop bashing on Manila. I can't just beat a dead kaiju here. But it was released on December 16th of 1967. In Japan, that is. 
And the film, again, went straight to TV in the U.S. in 1969, but actually did have a little bit of a theatrical run as a double bill with Ebera in the U.K. in 1969. This is one, I'm just going to say it right now, this and All Monsters Attack were the only other two that I did not rewatch for this. I haven't seen these two in a long time, and I don't plan on going back to either one of them for a long time. Let's just move on from Son of Godzilla. Son of Godzilla, I don't think, uh, and going back to Ebera as well, I don't think either of those are starter Godzilla movies at all. I don't think you should avoid Ebera, but maybe you should avoid Son of Godzilla. If you're a completist, you want to see the whole thing, sure. I'm probably going to have to go back and watch those at some point, so I feel comfortable giving them a letterbox score. I'm not looking forward to it. I gotta be honest with you. All right, let's shift the calendar to 68, and one of the, I think, fan favorites, maybe not my favorite, but a fan favorite for sure, Destroy All Monsters. (laughs) Before I move on, let me throw the title out there, would be the next movie. But there's a little bit going on with this one in Son of Godzilla. It's widely believed that Destroy All Monsters was set to be the series finale. It's not known if this is true, as the first draft of the script was turned in before Son of Godzilla got its release. So, if this was to be the last Godzilla, they're still working on Son of Godzilla. But, it is likely thought, however, and you know this comes from Arakawa, that Tanaka believed that they had run out of ideas and should end the series. Well, I mean, you can't really argue with them at this point after the last couple movies they had put together, but I'm glad they didn't because we get some good stuff going forward. Some believe was inspired by the monster movie boom of 1967 in Japan, and uh, South Korea as well, which saw seven large-scale monster movies released, including Gamera vs. Gaios, which was probably the last good movie in that franchise until we got into the 90s. We've got a lot of good monster movies coming out in 1967. They're going to try to capitalize on that with this movie. Takeshi Kimura and Honda worked together to write a script as Sekizawa took a one-movie hiatus from the series. The movie was originally referred to as Monster Chishingura. Now, what is Chishingura, you might be asking? Well, it just refers to the rebellion of the 47 samurai as depicted in films such as 47 Ronin. It's just a famous story in Japan. This is where we get into kind of the lost, lost opportunity of in the reality of what actually happened it was thought that every single toho monster in the standalones in the godzilla franchise and even king kong were going to be shown in this film and i love that idea i love taking every single one of their monsters because what we get essentially are the ones that come from other series almost have like little tiny bit player roles and i Think Varen, we don't even get his name. I don't think his name's even uttered in this movie, even though he is in the movie. This was changed both due to budget and the shelving of this film in favor of Son of Godzilla. Uh, When they revived it a year later, the King Kong rights had expired, and that was that. So as we mentioned before, this one was actually, the script was turned into this before production began on Son of Godzilla. And I think this was initially supposed to be the one that came out first. For some reason, they thought it was a good idea to put the B-Team's movie out first and put this one back on the shelf. But I think it would have been a lesser film with King Kong in it. I would have loved, however, 
to see a lot of the other smaller monsters get their due. But I think the problem you would run into is you would just get a small little quick cameo, like we did with some others, so. Honda was obsessed with the idea of a monster farm and how you would go about feeding that many creatures. Unfortunately, due to the budget, he wasn't able to expand much on the idea in this movie. So, uh, <laughs> Honda, things aren't coming up Honda right now. What he wants to do, he's not really getting, you know, the green light to do. It was released in Japan on August 1st of 1968, and it would be released in the U.S. by AIP on May 23rd of 1969 with an English dub. Yeah, they moved away. I don't know, that probably has something to do with them putting on the shelf for a while. They moved away from that New Year's holiday time slot and pushed it back into August in Japan, which is interesting. Interesting move on their part. Destroy All Monsters, like I said, I think it's a bunch of wasted potential. I don't necessarily... I think it's fine. I think it's a good movie. I like the human aspects of it. I just think it could have been so much more. I think it rests solely in that... Uh, middle territory of the Showa era, where it's not crazy enough for me to... I, I don't know, it's pretty crazy. <laughs> I'm going back and forth here live on Destroy All Monsters. I do like the movie. I've liked it better upon, you know, rewatching it again. One of those things is, why does it take so many of these monsters to take down Ghidorah when it only took three of them to take him down in the last film, and then... You know, Invasion of the Astro Monster doesn't fit the continuity of that either. King Ghidra has varying difficulty levels, I'm assuming, as a final boss, as it were. I'm not going to get into that, but let's move on in the timeline. So that was 1968. We'll jump to 1969, and, you know, this would... After this one, we're going to skip a year, so they're kind of maybe getting the sense that they're out of ideas. We have next All Monsters Attack. Now, All Monsters Attack had Honda back as the director. And once again, it's believed that Godzilla was meant to be put on hold after this, or before this, really. But instead, was going to be continued in an overseas co-production as an animated show. However, the show fell through, and we're left with a film aimed directly at kids which tried to compete with the success of Gamera and the, the strides it was seen in that market. Honda and Sekizawa returned for the film, but although Tsuburaya was credited, he claims he wasn't actively involved in the special effects. So he didn't really have much to do in this. I think it was more of a supervising role as he had done on the past couple of films. Due to the decline in theatrical sales, the budget for this film was small, uh, even smaller than the other ones, and they were forced to use a ton of stock monster footage, along with the same Godzilla suit from Destroy All Monsters. Due to this small budget, Honda had to actually direct the special effects scenes himself along with the drama scenes. This would be a first for Honda, and a first for the series, and I don't know, it wouldn't happen again in the Showa era, but that's how crappy the production of this, mu this movie was. You know, the budget was tiny, Honda had to direct the entire thing instead of just the drama. It was an absolute mess in the production standpoint. You could see why the result was what it was. It did release in Japan on December 20th of 1969. 
So we're back in the New Year's slot for this one. And a and that's what I'm wondering if we're not putting these in the New Year's slot to give them, you know, these are the more family-oriented films are releasing in New Year's. I don't know. A subversion was released in the U.S. in 1971 as Godzilla's Revenge. Oh, and I've been lacking on this one. Uh, this is not a good place to start. I would put this with Son of Godzilla on the very bottom of your list. Only watch it if you absolutely feel you have to. But um, Destroy All Monsters, I think, is a terrible starting point as well, even though I would recommend that film. Again, haven't rewatched this one in a long time. Uh, let's just skip one instead of being negative here. <laughs> so we skip a year, no release in 1970, but we would get The Return of Godzilla in 1971 with Godzilla vs. Hedera. Yoshimitsu Bano was brought on to direct this movie. He was the assistant director on Throne of Blood and The Hidden Fortress, as well as some other films, but he had fallen off since then. I don't think this movie really resumed his career or did him any favors either, though. He conceived the story when noticing the smog in some of the bigger cities and seeing the polluted oceans. He wanted to make a movie about an alien tadpole that would evolve into a monster due to pollution, yeah, this is where we are with the series, guys. Buckle in if you're not familiar, because this is where things get weird. And it's funny that this matches up with the timeline of when Hammer Horror was starting to get weird. Things are just getting weird all around, and <laughs> going in different directions. This movie is a mouthpiece for a message. This is the, I think, the first time in a Godzilla film where I felt the message is just beating us over the head over and over again with the message of pollution. The director set out to talk about that, and he certainly did. This was his directorial debut by himself as a solo director, and he was given even less of a budget than previous movies, so you just see a continually shrinking budget to go along with box office sales. He was only given a single team to shoot the action and drama, and not two separate crews, and was only given 35 days total to shoot everything. This would be the first time we would see special effects director Teriyoshi Nakano take over, and he would continue through the end of the Showa era. In an interesting story, Kenpachiro Satsuma, who played Hedera, came down with appendicitis while filming, and they had to complete the appendectomy with him still in the suit due to the time it took to remove the suit. That's very interesting. Bono wanted to direct a sequel to this movie, but the producer Tanaka hated the film and fired Bono immediately. Instead, they would choose to move forward with a film known as Godzilla vs. Red Moon. This was later scrapped and turned into Daigoro vs. Goliath, which is another kaiju movie, and more on that in another episode, like I've been saying over and over. It seems they had some real issues deciding where to go next, because... Two other films were scrapped before they decided eventually on Godzilla vs. Gigan. Uh, they were Godzilla vs. the Space Monsters, Earth Defense Directive, and The Return of King Ghidorah. The film would be released on July 24th of 1971. AIP released it in the US as Godzilla vs. the Smog Monster. This version would be replaced on home media by the international version titled Godzilla vs. Hedera, which was redubbed in Hong Kong, which was common for the time with these international dubs. This version was actually first broadcast in the U.S. on the Sci-Fi Channel in 1996. I think that's the first time we would get a lot of these international films 
shown was on Sci-Fi Channel in the mid-90s, mid and late 90s. So that's cool. Uh, Sci-Fi used to be a very different channel than what it is today. The movie also got a UK release in 1975, so a little bit of time for that one. But Hedera, if you're not familiar, and this is the first time we kind of go outside of the norm. You know, we've had Rodan, Angiris, Mothra, Ghidorah. Destroy All Monsters obviously has all the different monsters, including, you know, our our friends, the giant spider, and things like that that we'd see in earlier films. These were... Hedera is our first attempt to, because, you know, All Monsters Attack was a rehash. Son of Godzilla used some very weird monsters. This was the first time to try to create something new and put a new direction on the film with the monster. This goes back to where I had talked about all the one-offs that were being done at the time where we would see you know, one monster, and that's it. You know, we'd see them one time, and that's it. We're not going to see them again. The thing with Hedera is, Hedera is very much in line with the message. He is a smog monster. He is made of pollution. You know, he is polluting. I really like, he has so many different transformations. Like we said, we had the tadpole. This is that more thing where we would see later on in traditional Japanese, like we'd see it in anime and all kinds of things, with characters going, with enemies going through transformations as they go along. But Hedera really takes the cake. You know, starts off as a um, tadpole and kind of morphs into this flying, you know, pollution saucer that rains down this smog on people and makes them unable to breathe and kills animals and all this different stuff. And man, let's let's start this off and set this up a little bit because this is where we get into a little bit of the weirder stuff that I want to talk about. This movie has... Some weird stuff. There's, you know, a kid dreaming of Godzilla burning sewage. There's a strange woman in a bodysuit singing, not once, but twice, a psychedelical musical number about pollution and how it's affecting the world. And then, you know, we've got hetero oil painting ads or animated, hand-drawn animated ads. Very weird. Not to mention hetero being weird in and of itself. This is, you know, we have these these ads that are put together in this animated style. And they're basically like PSAs warning you about the dangers of Hedera. And you've got, you know, one like, get your gas mask today. And it's all this stuff. It's very weird. Very avant-garde almost. This is the most avant-garde Godzilla film I think I've seen. It's very trippy. It's very experimental. It's maybe a bit of an acid trip. I mean, you have very weird things going on with these kind of um, hippies almost to use the word, and like I said, the message isn't hidden, and one of the worst sins, they play Godzilla as this completely, like, bumbling comic character, right down to the terrible music cues around him, and, you know, he flies, he flies in this movie, because he points his breath down at the ground, and he punches through Hedera, and the fight scenes are awful, this is just not a great movie. It's not one of my favorites. It's a weird movie. I think going back with back and forth with Nathan Bartleball on this, he likes it because of the more avant-garde style and the different weird things they're doing in this movie. But this is just not for me, guys. It's just not for me. And I think it's going to be off-putting to a lot of people. I love, you know, I do like the little ads, and I like that he's flying around releasing this smog. But the weird, trippy nature of this film and the weird style in which it's done, I just I just don't like. That's my recommendation on Hedera's. Put this one down closer. Now, this is a much better movie 
this is leaps and bounds above Son of Godzilla and All Monsters Attack. And so is another one we're going to be talking about that I don't really like in this section. But just know what you're getting into going in. All right, let's jump to 1972. We're back to yearly releases, and we would be for the end of the Showa era. And we've got Godzilla vs. Gigan. As mentioned earlier, Tanaka was disappointed with Hedera's commercial and critical success. He was brainstorming ideas on how to bring the series back to its classic 60s form. He noticed that both Ghidorah, the three-headed monster, and Invasion of the Astro Monster did very well in recent re-releases, and thought the way to save the franchise was to bring Ghidorah back. Sekizawa and Karu Mabuchi were told to each write a different treatment for the movie. The only stipulations were to include Ghidorah as well as a new monster named Gagan. Mabuchi's script was the aforementioned Godzilla vs. the Space Monsters Earth Destruction Directive. In this script, he introduced Megalon, who would instead be used in the next sequel. That's a little carrying over his script into the next movie. Sekizawa's script was Return of King Ghidorah, or The Return of King Ghidorah, sorry, and was much closer to the final film. His version had Godzilla, Rodan, and Varen, which it's a shame that Varen could not return, fighting Gigan, Ghidorah, and a new monster called Mogu. This would be Haru Nakajima's last time playing Godzilla, unfortunately, and he would retire after this. This was also the first time that we would see Godzilla bleed, which is a big thing. You know, I was rewatching this. I was like, oh, Godzilla's bleeding. That's crazy. Also the first time that we would see text bubbles used to show the monsters talking to each other. Yeah, that's where we're at right now in these movies. It released in Japan on March 12th of 1972 and did better than Hedera at the box office, which, you know, step in the right direction. I can imagine Hedera not connecting well, but... In the English dub version, the text bubbles coming out of the monsters' mouths were replaced with actual dubbed voices for the monsters, and boy, I thought the speech bubbles were bad, but I do not want monsters talking in my movie. I'm looking at you, Zigra. Yeah, I just don't want that. But, oh, and to mention, this was uh, Jun Fukuda again, who would direct the next couple of films as well. So something we need to talk about is by this time the monster designs were getting sleeker and kind of cooler and newer looking and the battles were getting much better. But the problem is that this movie, the plot is so nonsensical and the characters are so over the top. But the new kaiju start to look like something that we would see, you know, in Ultraman and we would see later in Super Sentai, which, you know, would go on to influence the, or not really influence, but it would be the base show that uh, Saban would bring in for Power Rangers and just kind of mash it up. But I think, you know, it's interesting to compare this movie to Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster. The plot is a little crazy in Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster, and we do have the monsters being goofy at points. Uh, When they talk to each other, you know, we've got the Mothra fairies narrating like we've talked about, but the fights are kind of ridiculously bad in that one, I will say. Not bad for the time, but bad for what we would expect from a Godzilla movie. But we see so much more of a focus on the people and their stories, and the monsters almost take a backseat role. Well, this is reversed in the 70s, and we're supposed to care about the monsters and the monster battles, and that's about it. Now, I really like the design of Gigan, but Gigan has no backstory whatsoever. He just appears out of space. It's crazy. 
<laughs> we've got this these evil the main driving of this plot are kind of these evil um these people who are possessing the bodies of these other people and their aliens and yeah they're bringing gigan back to wreak destruction and havoc on the world and they're like oh yeah and let's bring back Ghidorah. you know it, it really feels you really get that feeling that you were asked to include gigan and Ghidorah in this movie and that's what we get because we don't really get much of them until they fly onto the screen to get into the final fight at the end of the movie. But, uh, yeah, it's a weird one. It's another weird one. I actually kind of like this one and find it a little bit charming. It's not the greatest Godzilla movie for sure. It's definitely not one to start with. But I think it's pretty cool. Gagan is amazing. I love his design. Incredible kaiju. And underused, really. But, ah, uh, I don't know. It's just okay. I think some people will hate this movie. I think some people will like this movie a lot. My stance is I do like the movie, but it's a little bit crazy. And yeah, it's it's worth a watch for sure. But let's keep this thing moving so we're not here all day. But the aforementioned Megalon would appear in the next movie in 1973 with Godzilla vs. Megalon. Now, the idea of Megalon didn't actually start in the previous film, but the basic concept of Megalon started in the main antagonist from All Monsters Attack in one of the script revisions. You know, it was supposed to be a giant mole cricket named Gebera and was going to be the main villain of that film. Then, as we mentioned, later appeared in an early script for Godzilla vs. Gigan, and we would end up settling with Megalon in this movie. This is the only film in the Showa era to include Jet Jaguar, and it's initially thought that this was supposed to be a Jet Jaguar solo film, but all those rumors are false, and it's not the case. In fact, Jet Jaguar was created by an elementary school kid in a contest Toho ran. His initial character was called Redorone, and when the boys saw how much the final design changed, he was very upset. Not cool, Toho. Not cool. <laughs> Let's continue on before I talk about Jet Jaguar. The project was a last-minute replacement for a canceled project, and you can tell, really. Uh, due to this, Sekizawa didn't have time to write a script. He could only put together a rough story outline. Jun Fukuda was back again to direct and ended up writing the screenplay himself. So another rush job here. To make up for lost time, they finished filming in just three weeks. The Megalon suit was reportedly the heaviest since the original 1954 Godzilla suit, which, remember, that one weighed 220 pounds. So you can tell, I mean, you can tell that the actor is struggling a little bit to move around in that suit, and you can tell it's this big, bulky suit. Again, though, Megalon is very much like a, something you'd see in Ultraman or Super Sentai with his design. Not of this earth, kind of very weird and mutated. It released in theaters on March 17th, 1973 in Japan, and it became the first Godzilla film to sell under a million tickets, not really what they were going for. In the summer of 1976, CinemaShares released the movie in the U.S. after a heavy marketing campaign. Apparently the trailer used incorrect names for Jet Jaguar as Robot Man and Gigan as Borodon. And strangely enough, I didn't know this, maybe if you were around at the time you would have known this, but the film amassed a large cult following in the U.S. It was also the only Godzilla film to receive a primetime TV premiere. 
It premiered on March 15, 1977 on NBC, but it was only given an hour slot. To accommodate this, it was cut down to just 47 minutes, which is crazy. But yeah, this film had a cult following in the United States, apparently. It was featured on Mystery Science Theater 3000, of course. And I'm told, you know, from what I'm reading, this was how people thought kaiju movies should have been. Or that they were. They just thought they were this crazy and off the wall. So that's what people had as their impression of kaiju films, which is not right at all and crazy to think of. I I don't like that that became a thing, but you could kind of see that in what we would get later on when Americans were choosing what they would watch from Japan. There's not much to write home about. This is a terrible movie from a character's perspective. All the people in this movie are awful. We've got this, like, civilization that's wronged by Godzilla, and they call in Megalon, and yes, we have Gagan again, and in a nothing role. But you've got Jet Jaguar, which is a really cool character, even though he doesn't do a whole lot, I guess, and you've got Godzilla back, and it's all right. I mean, I really like the design of Megalon again. We've got, and this is the same thing we would see with Gamera, we've got wasted potential with these really cool designs and nothing really to show for them as far as the movies themselves. So this is down on the bottom. I actually increased my rating on Hedera after watching this movie, and that should tell you something, because I just crapped all over Hedera, who is pretty much literally crap. That's what you get with this one. Not worth spending a ton of time on. Let's move on to two of the better Showa-era films, or more fun Showa-era films, in my opinion. So 1974, we would see Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla. And this is the birth of one of my favorite, if not my favorite, supporting Godzilla cast member, and that is Mechagodzilla. We continue the trend of seeing something that would show up in a Sentai show or Ultraman with Mechagodzilla. It, you know, so let, let's talk about that a little bit. Um, with Mechagodzilla, you know, they were looking to cash in on the mecha or giant robot craze that was happening in Japan at the time. Even after the dismal box office return, Tanaka wasn't ready to give up on the series yet. This was the big 20th anniversary film. You know, this was the one. Anniversaries are big with Japanese uh, pop culture stuff. And this was the one. And so some interesting facts on this. Uh, Mechagodzilla's walk was taken from the formal movements of Kabuki which is a type of theater in Japan, and you can tell that knowing that going in. So next time you watch that, if you are familiar with that, you know, keep an eye out for that. We also talked about Anguirus. This would be his final appearance for another 30 years. So that's crazy. And this is also one of, if not the bloodiest Godzilla films, with the, you know, the death of Tsuburaya in 1970. The series began to become much more graphic to compete with other monster films like Gamera. But yeah, this is a bloody, I'm going to talk about it in a little bit, but this is a very bloody and violent film. This would also, you know, be the last time that Jun Fukuda would direct a film, would direct a Godzilla film. So that is the end of his run with the character. Now getting into the U.S. release, unfortunately we don't have a whole lot to go on in this movie, even though I love it. In 1977, CinemaShares purchased the North American rights to Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla. They were set to run this one as Godzilla vs. the Bionic Monster, and it mostly ended up running as a matinee during the times that kids would go. So, it was aimed at children. 
Now, what happened with Bionic Monster is that Universal threatened to sue CinemaShares for their use of the term Bionic, which they felt infringed on the Bionic Man. CinemaShares quickly changed the title to Godzilla vs. the Cosmic Monster, which makes a whole ton of sense, right? <sighs> anyway, it would release in the UK later that year, so later in 77. It did slightly better than Megalon at the box office, but it was nothing compared to how these films used to sell. At least it was over a million admissions in Japan. That's something. So with this movie, this is one of my favorite, you know, one of my darlings of like the the weird movies in this franchise. I really like Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla a lot. I really like the character of Mechagodzilla. In this one, it's so interesting how they roll out the whole Mechagodzilla thing and how that's all revealed and how it plays out. And I want to avoid spoilers if I can for a lot of this, but, you know, basically we start out with a Godzilla destroying things and people are like, what's going on? Because Godzilla's a good guy at this point. We see a very bloodied Anguirus as well. Anguirus gets knocked around so much, but Anguirus is the the one monster in this film that kind of, he's the the monster that takes this film in the direction, reveals something to Godzilla, so he kind of sacrifices himself to be able to reveal something. Man, I absolutely love this movie. King Caesar is incredible. The move to a monster that is, or a kaiju that's coming directly from, like, lore, the lore of old, and, you know, it takes place. You've got this village of people who practice the old ways and things like that, and they, King Caesar is their, you know, deity that they worship and all this and king caesar is awesome i love king caesar king caesar does not get enough credit another one of those 70s monsters if i could make a godzilla film or a godzilla series i would definitely be repurposing a lot of this 70s stuff with jet jaguar with megalon with gigan with king caesar for sure with titanosaurus as we'll get into in a little bit but king caesar is awesome the song to call out king caesar is amazing I just really like this, and it's kind of a, it's got some adventure film thrown in with it, and we've seen that before, uh, we're here on this island kind of exploring stuff, but Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla is one of my absolute favorites, my favorite of these later period movies for sure, not a good place to start at all, I think we've lost that a long time ago, but it is definitely up there in the upper tier and worth watching. Well, the uptick must have made the, you know, Brass at Toho think, let's go back to the well, because in 1975, we get Terror of Mechagodzilla, and this would be, you know, Ishiro Honda's swan song with the character. We would never see another Honda-directed Godzilla. Yukiko Takayami won a contest and had her script picked up for the next installment. So this is interesting, you know, you've got a contest to create a new monster, you've got a contest to create a script, like, you could tell the well's running dry. It remained mostly intact, with most changes being made due to budget issues. That's cool they didn't cut up the script like they kind of changed with Jet Jaguar. The major change was the removal of two dinosaurs who originally merged together to become Titanosaurus. The main issue being that it wasn't really explained well and they didn't know how to explain it in the film. Takayama went through three more revisions before the script was finalized. Now, this and Space Godzilla are the only two Godzilla films to show any brief nudity. In this one, we see the bare breast of, like, an android character, and she's being repaired, 
even though, you know, this scene was used a mannequin, it was cut from all U.S. releases because, of course, it was. But it's kind of, um, this has been the first time I had rewatched this in a long time, so it was kind of shocking. I'm sure it's the first time I'd seen the Japanese version. Kind of shocking to see, you know, you get the very bloody Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla, and then you have nudity in this one. Honda enjoyed working with Takayama on the movie and regretted never being able to work with her again. He enjoyed having a woman's perspective on the film. The movie was released in Japan on March 15th of 1975. As far as the American release, a Toho English dubbed international version was created, but it never had a wide release in the U.S. It did release on VHS in the U.K., though. It released in March of 1978 under the title of Terror of Godzilla in the U.S. This version was heavily cut for violence and the aforementioned nude scene, and instead of doing their own dub, they just used the international version dub track instead. Henry Saperstein released the mostly uncut international version under its original title on TV in late 1978, so not too long after the cut version had released in theaters. This was mostly uncut except for that nude scene. He also added a 10-minute prologue explaining the story of the other U.S. versions of Godzilla films that he released. So the other ones he was responsible for and had an you know had a interest in, he included those in like a recap at the beginning of the movie, which is very weird. Not a not the direction I'd take it in. The film only sold 980,000 tickets, which would be the fewest of any Godzilla film to date in Japan. Very sad. Very sad that this is the one that has that not Megalon, but. This, along with the general decline of monster movies, led Toho to put any monster film on hold. Any future monster films, that is. However, they'd had no plans of ending Godzilla series long term. They received numerous Godzilla scripts throughout the 70s, but wouldn't release another film until the 30th anniversary in 1984. So let's talk about the terror of Mechagodzilla for a little bit. There's, I really like this one. It's very weird. There's some mind control stuff going on. Titanosaurus is awesome. I like Titanosaurus a lot. I like Mechagodzilla a lot. And they don't start fresh. I mean, they do carry on with, you know, this is what happened to Mechagodzilla at the end of the other movie. You thought he was destroyed, but he wasn't, and all this. It's a pretty fun movie. It's very off the wall like some of the other ones. But I liked the human aspect of this one. Uh, much more than I had liked some more some recent ones, or for a long time at least in the series. And I think it sits there, you know, in that middle of the pack with better than Gagan, and it's better than King Kong vs. Godzilla, but it's right around in there for me. And before I go, I wanted to do one more of these, and I haven't done these in a while where I'm ranking the films I'm talking about. I want to give my rundown of the Showa-era Godzilla, because I feel like that is, when I'm not doing ratings on this show, that's probably more effective than anything else. Um, So I'm going to run down and give you my Showa-era films ranked. Now, I'm only ranking the ones that I saw this previous time. You know, the ones that I've seen in the past couple of years. Because it's really not, I guess, fair to (laughs) rank the other ones, because I just haven't seen them in so long. So let me give you my rundown here. At number 13, no surprise, I have Godzilla vs. Megalon. At number 12, I have Godzilla Raids Again. At number 11, I have Godzilla vs. Hedorah. At number 10, I've got Invasion of the Astro Monster. At number 9, I've got Godzilla vs. Gigan. 
At number eight, I've got Destroy All Monsters. At number seven, I've got King Kong versus Godzilla. At number six, I have Rodan. At number five, I have Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster. At number four, I have Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla. At number three, I have Mothra. At number two, I have Mothra versus Godzilla. And at number one, I have Godzilla 1954. Quick post-production note, I actually forgot Terror of Mechagodzilla, which should sit at number seven between Rodan and King Kong vs. Godzilla. So sorry about that, but I will put the list out on social media this week, and you can see the better listing there. So that's a little rundown of where I would rank these things. I will post that the week this episode drops, just so you can see it visually, because I know it's kind of hard to, to run down the list there. But that's what I got. So that is going to do it for the Showa era coverage. This is going to be a very long episode compared to normal. But I just love the character so much. And I thought that he needed a proper rundown of the timeline. You know, let's go down through movie by movie, spout some facts, talk about the movies themselves for a little bit. I just really love the character and wanted to do it this way. I hope you enjoyed going down and doing it this way. Um, if not, let me know, because I am planning on doing the uh, Heisei era and Millennium era and all that stuff that way. So let me know if that's not for you. Um, then we spent a long time on this, but hopefully you're not bored of this, and hopefully you're looking for some more. To break it up a little next episode, I will be doing kind of a retrospective on Dae kaiju films, but the ones I want to talk about are those early Gamera films, the Daimajin films, so I'll be talking about those as well as giving a little history on Dia Films and what happened with them. That's the plan for next episode. Probably it would, will be a lot shorter than this one, but that's okay. I think Godzilla deserves it. He is the king of the monsters. As far as plugs, Godzilla related, again, please go over to Twitter or Facebook and there are daily polls where we are trying to decide what the best kaiju is or what the favorite kaiju is that isn't Godzilla you can vote in those daily very large bracket we're starting with I kind of did these preliminary matchups at first where it was just four matchups of monsters and this was all kind of random like I obviously did the you know the top four seeds are the ones that I think are the most popular or the most well-known of the monsters and the kaiju um, those ones will get like their number one seeds everything else was kind of randomized so uh, but we started with those preliminary ones where it's, you know, you got to work your way into the bracket because I could not cut this thing down to 32 monsters or 32 kaiju. And I had to start with, you know, 36. So that bracket will be put together and I will continuously update these. I know it'll, there will already have been probably a week or more of these matchups by the time you hear this. So hopefully you see that on social media and get in. If not, just jump in on those. Um, there will be a ton of first or second round matchups once we get through this first preliminary round. So that's a fun thing that I've always wanted to do. Let me know what you think of that if you like those and you like voting in those. And just let me know what you think of the monsters as you go through. If you've never heard of them, if you love them, if you hate them, whatever. Uh, as far as other podcasts, before I plug my own, I am a co-host on Phantom Video like I mentioned last time. And by the time this comes out, I'm assuming we'll have another episode released. We at least recorded it and talked about the newer releases for like a period of three weeks. So we're talking about the new stuff coming out. 
that is Nathan Bartlebaugh, Dave Becker, and myself. And then we delve into, we each did a feature review of a newer release. And Dave Becker's, the movie he talked about, I had never heard of, and it involves Dennis Hopper, and it's an incredibly interesting deep dive that he did, that he did on that movie. I mean, he watched hours and hours and hours of special features and dove into the history of this thing. It's incredible. And Nathan and I tried to do our best to follow up, but we definitely didn't get as deep into the special features as Dave. But that's a podcast where we're looking at physical media and film review based on that stuff. So there's some fun stuff going on with that. We also had a Criterion episode out where we picked some Criterion choices we'd recommend to people. You can follow the podcast over on Twitter at Screaming Ages. You can join the open Facebook group over at Screaming Through the Ages there. Uh, you can find the episodes wherever you get your podcast, and they're also housed at ScreamingThroughTheAges.com. You can email the show at ScreamingThroughTheAges at Yahoo.com. If you want to leave a voicemail for the show um, that I will play on air, you can call in at 740-297-6556. As always, I'd appreciate if you could share this with your friends and other people who you think would be interested. Leave reviews if you feel so, if you feel uh, inclined to on your favorite, you know, podcasting service. And I just uh, really am enjoying doing these kaiju episodes. I hope you do too. We'll get back to something that's a little more horror for October. We've got some big things coming up for that. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself because I've already talked a lot about what's going on in the future. But until next time. Keep your eyes on your favorite podcast feed for your next bi-weekly horror movie history lesson. See you.